Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and my favorite documentary, Yes Minister. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. Nuclear security is a fascinating topic that has been much more salient during 2022 than any of us might wish. But it can be hard to find super informed people who are willing to speak candidly about it. Fortunately, though, there is Jeffrey Lewis. Jeffrey has worked on nuclear weapons and proliferation for decades, while remaining a fun and freewheeling academic who hosts a very banter-packed podcast of his own called Arms Control Wonk. This is very much not a dry technical episode. If you stick around, I can say with high probability that you will be entertained by some very spicy personal takes. The backstory is that a few months ago, Jeffrey said on his own podcast that he thought me and other people like me were well-meaning but getting some basic stuff about nuclear security wrong. Unfortunately, he didn't say what I was wrong about, so I couldn't pass that up and reached out to get him on the show to tell me why I'm wrong to my face. Because I'm super confused about this issue, and if anyone can clear things up, they would be doing me a massive favor. I also solicited questions on this topic from regular listeners on Twitter and got some really outstanding ones, so Jeffrey was able to field many of the things you are most likely to be wondering about nuclear war. Among other things, Jeffrey tells us why mutually assured destruction is a myth of sorts, that the US officially says it will not just win but dominate a nuclear war, why US presidents secretly think they won't use nuclear weapons, but why Jeffrey doesn't believe it, the silliest mistakes the US is currently making with nuclear weapons, why a huge constraint on US nuclear weapon reform is rivalry between the US Army, Navy, and Air Force, why the US and China have somehow never agreed any treaty about nuclear weapons, despite it being in both their interests, what bothers him most about the culture of his fields, actually multiple things that bother him particularly about the culture of his field, as well as what the effective altruism community is most likely to get wrong about nukes, uh, as well as the most useful things that it can bring to the table. One quick notice before that is that on our other show, ADK After Hours, we've released a new interview with Marcus Davis, a founder of Rethink Priorities, a global prioritization consulting group that has over 40 staff now and who produced some of the work that Jeffrey is very broadly responding to in this conversation. Among other things, Marcus talks about careers in generalist research where you study really neglected topics. So if you're interested in global priorities research or cost-benefit analysis in new areas, go check that out on the ADK After Hours feed. All right, I recommend strapping in your seatbelts and returning your chair to an upright position because without further ado, I bring you Jeffrey Lewis. Today, I'm speaking with Jeffrey Lewis. Jeffrey is the director of the East Asia Nonproliferation Program at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies. He's also the founding author of the popular Arms Control Wonk blog, which he started all the way back in 2004, as well as now being a co-host of the Arms Control Wonk podcast. Years ago, he did his dissertation on China's approach to nuclear deterrence with international relations legends John Steinbrenner and Thomas Schelling as advisors, among others. And today, he's a particular expert on the nuclear strategies and arsenals of China and North Korea. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Jeffrey. Oh, I am so happy to be here, even if it is a bit early in California. <laughs> uh, yeah, one delightful thing about having moved from California to London is uh, I very rarely have to do early morning interviews now. I can, I can, as a night owl, I'm very happy to be doing them at, <laughs> at more often 8 p.m. instead. And happily, I'm a morning person. Oh, excellent. Cool. Well, I hope we're going to get to talk about ways of reducing the risk of nuclear weapons being used in war. But first, yeah, what do you, as, as always, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? So a lot of my work these days is creating open source information about nuclear programs. 
So just tracking who's building what with the idea that maybe if we know what countries are building, we'll have some insight into why. So I spend a lot of time looking at the changes in China's nuclear arsenal, uh, getting ready for the other shoe to drop in North Korea, uh, and, and just generally keeping a wary eye on the Russians. I see. So the idea is to use open source intelligence to kind of get more, like thicker details on what exactly is going on in those countries and then reverse engineering their overall strategy from that. Yeah, you know, a really good example is we spent a lot of time looking at machine tools in North Korean uh, military factories, which sounds really boring. In fact, uh, there are horizontal <laughs> boring machines, which are which are boring in both ways. <laughs> but one fascinating outcome of doing that kind of research is that you will learn things about the status of their nuclear and missile program that they would never tell you, but they will show you because they'll show you the machine where they build the component. And you can figure out when the machine was built, when it was likely imported, you know the building it's located in, you know when the building was built. So you can start to reconstruct a history of when important decisions were made about their nuclear and missile program. So just as an example of that, we can see when North Korea imported the machines that led to the big breakthroughs they made in 2017 in terms of their liquid propellant rocket engines. And so people always are like, well, what happened in 2017? How did it go so fast? And, and we can say like, well, 10 years earlier, they built a new building and they filled it with machines. And this is now just the inevitable outcome of that thing that you missed at the time. Right, right. Um, yeah, that's fascinating work. We, we might get a chance uh, to, to come back to some of it later in the interview. It's a, it's a weird gig. Yeah. Um, the, the number one reason I wanted to, to, talk, to talk to you today, and I guess we, we shouldn't waste any time getting into it, is, uh, is some pretty exciting and, and spicy comments you made on your, on your own podcast, saying that you think the effective altruism community, which, which I guess includes me and many people listening to, to, to this interview, uh, that, that we potentially have some pretty wrong ideas about nuclear security issues, basically because the issue is so complicated and hard for domain experts to explain well. And I, I guess you, you, you excuse us somewhat saying that you, you think that a lot of people think about these issues wrong. So it's not, it's not just us. But nonetheless, you'd love it if we could, if we could get, some, get some better ideas. When I heard you say that, I was super excited because I feel incredibly uncertain personally and see myself at risk of making big mistakes in this area just due to a complete lack of specialist knowledge. One complication with this conversation is I, I didn't fully realize that there were any clear or consistent positions that the effective altruism community took when it came to nuclear weapons. And in fact, I might have thought the biggest problem we have is that we're at a bit of a loss to know what to do in this space uh, to the point that it's pretty hard to make progress. But maybe that's maybe that's just my perception because uh, I'm, I'm in, the, in the really uncertain camp personally. Anyway, yeah, when, when you said this on your show, uh, quote, if you look at the work that the effective altruism community does on nuclear risk, it's as misguided as the Strategic Air Command's original, you know, uh, approach to nuclear weapons. What ideas or activities did you think of yourself as reacting to? Well, I think the first thing I should say is it's probably right that I should never reduce an entire community, but I have an impressionistic reaction to a few different pieces I've read. And when you come to a field new, you do tend to observe kind of cultural differences, right? Differences in trends. Totally. And so an example of the kind of thing that popped out at me that really struck me is uh, in a lot of different things I've seen in the effective altruism community's writings, there's a huge emphasis on counterforce versus countervalue targeting. Yep. As though that that is a, a meaningful distinction that can be analytically used to understand nuclear policy and targeting and pathways to war. And, and to me, that's just crazy. Huh. Uh, because while these are real terms, 
that have meaning, those terms are are fossils from an era that doesn't really exist anymore. And there's an entire history behind those terms. And if you know that history, you can use those terms, and I use them and other people use them. But that history is so complex and weird and specific that they really, they're really limited in what they mean. And so just to, to explain that a little bit or unpack that, if you look at what the United States says about its nuclear weapons today, we are explicit that we target things that the enemy values. And we are also explicit that we follow certain interpretations of the law of armed conflict. And it is absolutely clear in those legal writings that we can, that the United States does not target civilians intentionally, but that in conducting what you might call counterforce, there are a list of permissible targets. And they include not just nuclear forces, which I think often in the EA community, people assume counterforce means nuclear forces because like it's got the word force, right? (laughs) But it's not true. So traditionally, the U.S. targets nuclear forces and all of the supporting infrastructure, including command and control. It targets leadership. It targets other military forces. And it targets uh, what used to be called war-supporting industries, but now are called war-sustaining industries. So that would include all kinds of industry, potentially. Factories, yeah. And so there, of course, is this constant effort to scrub targets and move things in and move things out and reinterpretation. But there just is not this clear distinction. And my favorite example of this, which is now archaic, I mean, here I am talking about fossils, right? But when the Soviet Union deployed its nuclear-armed anti-ballistic missile system around Moscow, uh, there was a particularly difficult-to-destroy radar that had several dozen targets uh, or several dozen warheads assigned to it. And, and it was in the suburbs of Moscow. Right. So, yes, we don't <laughs> yeah. deliberately target civilians, yeah. But on the other hand, but when bombs start landing in Moscow, it might not be a distinction that that the Soviets were super interested in. And it's really important to understand the reason that this distinction came about was because and honestly the reason it popped into my mind and I perhaps uncharitably compared the EA community which contains a bunch of really nice people to general power who nobody thinks is very nice or nobody thought was very nice. So it's a little unfair. But the whole reason that the idea of countervalue existed is because very early on, Strategic Air Command had a fairly simple idea, which is in a war, we're going to use everything we have and we're not going to hold anything back. Yeah. And that horrified a lot of civilian strategists, including Bill Kaufman, who's sort of the hero of the book Wizards, Wizards of Armageddon and is my my advisor, John Steinbrenner's advisor. And, and he argued that that's suicide. Right. If we start hitting Russian cities, they'll start hitting Russian cities. And so he was one of many analysts who started to argue that we should try to at least refrain initially from hitting cities in the hopes that the Soviets would do the same. Right. And it's important to note, we didn't know if they would do the same. We didn't know if the same thought had occurred to them. It was pure speculation. And initially, Strategic Air Command resisted it. And then they realized that if they embraced counterforce, their list of targets would grow very, very long. Yeah. And they could have all the bombs they wanted. And the McNamara Pentagon, which initially embraced, embraces no cities and counterforce, and it's still with us today in, in that sense, ends up being not very happy about what they thought was a rather clever trick to rein in the generals. Right, right, right. 
Okay, so that's that's one area where we're potentially confused. I guess my, my goal today is just maybe to get as much information as, as, as I can out of your brain. L- lots of instances where the audience or the effective artisan community or I might just be confused in how we think about nuclear strategy, how we think about nuclear arsenals, and how we analyze the problem when we're trying to figure out what, if anything, can plausibly be done to, to improve the situation. This is obviously a, a, a super wide-ranging topic, but one way we can at least slightly constrain it is that on this show, we're probably more worried about nuclear conflict between major powers, so between China, US, Russia, US, uh, rather than a, a handful of nukes from uh, North Korea, j- just because the severity of the climatic effects, the severity of the direct effects would, would, be, would be so much larger. All that said, yeah, uh, what's another idea that stands out to you that you'd like people to think uh, about about differently instead? I have a list of other ideas, Yeah, but I I wanted to lodge a second complaint, which is more conceptual, Okay, which is I I observe that there are a lot of secondary and tertiary sources cited in the literature that I come into contact with. And there are a lot of inferences drawn on the basis of the accounts in these secondary and tertiary sources, which are often really, really wrong. So I will sometimes see, um, well, actually, I can think of a, a specific example where a person asserted that building reprocessing facilities to separate plutonium, right, which you need for some bombs, the person asserted this was difficult. And the warrant for the claim was that only a small number of countries had built such facilities. And I think, you know, Wikipedia or something was cited. The problems with that claim were, first, more countries had built these facilities than were acknowledged. And that was an issue of knowing what the right place to go look something up like that would be. But then secondarily, and this is a, this is a deeper conceptual issue, the U.S. has had a, a policy over a long period of time of discouraging countries from building such things. And the countries that do build them have been fairly, although not completely, restrained in exporting such capabilities. And so it's not so much that it's difficult technically for a determined proliferator. It's that it's not the kind of business you would get into casually because of the political constraints. I guess that's just a general issue with generalist researchers or people who are smart amateurs in an area that it seems like a reasonable inference perhaps to draw from not many countries having done something that it might be difficult, but then you're uh, really misinterpreting. Well, I guess firstly, the claim that not many countries have done it might be wrong if you're not informed enough to be able to tell that that's mistaken. But then also the interpretation can, can, be, can be quite wrong, even if it's a plausible one. But, you know, it's difficult because where would you go to look something up like that, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I know as an expert... I would say, well, you need to go look at the facilities that the IAEA safeguards, and then you need to know all of the nuclear programs that are outside of safeguards, and I would just make my own bespoke list. Uh, That's much harder to do if you're a generalist researcher or you're new to the field. And that ultimately is why I I did feel that maybe I I should be a little bit kinder in my comments. Because at the end of the day, if my community isn't producing easy-to-access factual data that explains things clearly, like it's kind of not helpful to throw stones at people who get confused by like our crappy work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this is just a super, super general phenomenon. I mean, I mean, the issue is, if, yeah, if you're an amateur coming into an area trying to make sense of it, you, you don't even know the things that you're plausibly getting wrong because you're lacking so much context. So you don't even know potentially what, what questions are asked or what things to, to check more deeply. I, I found almost the only way to deal with this is to, is to make your best hash of something. And then you have to take it to someone who has spent decades in the field who can then bring the red pen to it and point out all of the stuff that's, that's, that's seriously misguided. 
Although in our field, you have to be careful because people will lie to you. Oh, really? There's an enormous amount of, oh, there's an enormous amount of gatekeeping and linguistic gamesmanship that serve to make it very hard to get at the truth of a matter. So again, I... Tell me more about that. I can give you just a, a trivial example of it. The U.S. does not have a launch on warning posture. We have a launch under attack posture. And if you look up the definition of launch under attack in the DOD glossary, it used to say, I don't know if it still says it, but it used to say uh, launch on tactical warning. Okay. But if you say launch on warning, people act like you're some dangerous hippie who has no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. And, and, and yet the distinction ends up being incredibly complicated, which is we have the ability to launch on warning. But we say that we do not rely on launch on warning. Okay. And that the policy, which is to say a thing that could change, is that we would wait for confirmation of a nuclear detonation. Okay. But that doesn't mean that we don't have the ability to launch on warning. And it doesn't mean that the system isn't structured to create incentives to do that. Oh, yeah, that, that we plausibly could in the heat of the moment. And, and so when you say we have a launch on warning policy and someone says, oh, no, we don't. We have a launch under attack policy. What happens is you have this debate that ensues that typically prevents the person from understanding the situation and leads to lack of clarity rather than somebody saying like, oh, well, here's the well thought out explanation of what we're really doing. And that's why I say it's gamesmanship and, and to a large extent gatekeeping. OK, yeah. We'll maybe come back to that uh, issue issue in the next section. But I got the sense that you think perhaps that, that, that we and that many people think about nuclear deterrence in quite a mistaken way these days. Yeah, is it possible to, to elaborate on that? Well, this is really where the Bill Kaufman gives you John Steinbrunner gives you me. But presumably, I'm like the really bad photocopy of Bill Kaufman at this point, <laughs> you know, blurry and smudged. Uh, I think one of the mistakes that exists generally is that there is a, a, a sense that states are the important uh, unit of analysis and that st states are sort of relatively rational and that you can sort of understand what a state does based on what it values. And I, I tend to look at this through the lens of decision-making, right? I, I see governments as being just systems that aggregate the preferences of individuals. And so you have a public and you have bureaucrats, and you have politicians, and you have military officers, and they are cooperating and competing. They have interests that are about the thing they're fighting about. They have other interests that are not the thing that they're fighting about, which but which impinge on their decision making. You know, maybe you don't care about nuclear weapons, but you do care about getting reelected, or you don't care about nuclear weapons, but you care about not looking weak because you care about some other issue. And so my work has traditionally focused on how those structures and norms and practices aggregate preferences to produce outcomes, which is like what happens if you have John Steinbrunner and Tom Schelling on your committee? Right. You know, I mean, yeah. Tom Schelling spends a ton of time doing these wonderful thought experiments to show how rational individuals can do crazy things. Uh, my favorite example, which is like nobody else's favorite example, but I like it, is he was giving a lecture once. And it, when he walks in, there's no one in the first two rows, and then the rest of the lecture hall is crowded. <laughs> now, a normal person says, oh, they must have reserved the first two rows. But Tom speculates, 
What if everyone wanted to sit as close as possible, but no one wanted to sit in the front row? So the first person comes in and sits in the second row and everybody else fills the second row and then they fill the rows behind. And then only then would they begin filling the front rows. And so what he creates is a rational, a rational individual choice, which is a lot like his work on housing discrimination, a rational individual choice that in aggregate produces an irrational outcome because everybody would be happier if they were sitting two rows closer. Yeah. Um, John had a very different take on that, but it was the same kind of idea. I mean, John's sensibility was not that people were having these sort of micro motives that produced macro behaviors, but rather that the world is too complex for us to understand. So like uh, he, he, he enjoyed the example of a tennis player. Uh, tennis players, if you were to try to mathematically model the act of striking a tennis ball with a racket, that is an impressive piece of mathematics. Tennis players are dumb, right? <laughs> they don't do the math. Didn't go to grad school. <laughs> right. This is, this, is a, this is a field that used to be called cybernetics. The idea that you could have, you know, what today we describe as algorithms that govern our behavior in a complex situation. And you might not optimize all the time, but over time, right, you would, you would do pretty well. So I think each of them were concerned with how individuals operating in big structures produce these outcomes whether that involves, you know, housing discrimination or nuclear war. Yeah. So as I understand it, a lot of people, I guess, including me, think about nuclear issues at a pretty high level of abstraction where we're going for the sort of pure game theory that I, that I might have learned in second year my, microeconomics. And that's a very natural way for me to think about this issue is, you know, if, if X does this, then, then Y will respond that way. And it's quite a clean analysis. And a different way of looking at it would be to say, if you, have a, if you have a much thicker understanding of the powers that different individuals in the system have and the different committees that something would go through and how the information flows from the radar to the president, then you can instead think about it as at the institutional level, you know, how, would, how is a decision actually being made here? And given that, what decision is likely to be spat out by, by the system? And that's, that's at a far different, a much lower level of abstraction than, uh, than some of the purest game theory. Well, and I, I think that, that's kind of, again, the joy of, of dealing with both Tom and John at the same time, because Tom really liked those game theoretical situations, but he sort of was also aware of the ways in which they break down in reality. And I think the simplest example of this is how do you even know you're under attack? You know, it's not a video game. It's not that you're told that there is an attack and you're told this accurately and you're given the correct number and you're given it in a prompt and predictable way. You know, we have radars and we have space-based sensors that look for infrared plumes. And so that kind of data that comes in, there are often false alarms. There are things that are missed. There are ambiguities. It's handled at an extremely low level and it's sort of reported up a chain of command. And by the time the president's told it, the president's not looking at the radar image, right? The president has a person conveying words that are meant to describe this complex phenomenon that's out there happening in the world. And so when you realize how little control each individual really in that process has, on the one hand, it, it is kind of a bummer because, you know, it's like, oh my God, we're all going to die. But on the other hand, it becomes a really rich and complex story. And I, Kennedy, John F. Kennedy got this really well when he had ordered a stand down to all U-2 flights during the Cuban Missile Crisis because he knew this was exactly the kind of thing that could get out of control. And he did not have total control. Uh, but a U-2 flight still went off and somebody got shot down. And Kennedy's response, which is like peak Kennedy, is 
there's always some son of a bitch who doesn't get the message. Right. You know, and I think that's a really good way of looking at dynamic complex systems. Yeah. So I suppose in theory, it seems like you could try to incorporate all of this stuff into a game theory matrix. But I suppose by the time you've done that, it's so enormously confusing that you may as well just be like, I mean, common sense and thinking through the process without a table might might serve you just as well. I mean, I think you have to do both. I, I do not in any way, shape or form reject game theoretic models to try to understand how decision makers might act. I just think it is important to be familiar with the particular animals in the zoo. Mm, yeah. Particularly because I see a lot of predictable decision-making pathologies. Yeah, what, what, what's an example? <laughs> uh, well, I will tell you. One of Tom Schelling's great books was written with this guy, Mort Halperin, who's probably like the third most, you know, he, there's a troika of important figures in my life. And, and, and Mort is one of those three. And Mort tells a story about the time he's in the defense department that illustrates uh, the pathology that I would, I would, I don't, it needs a name. I don't have a good name for it, but he, he gets this speech that the secretary of defense, or maybe it's a, maybe it's the undersecretary, but a speech a senior official is going to give. And unlike a typical defense department speech, it has pages of detail about Chinese internal politics and this figure named Lin Biao, who was Mao's heir apparent, who will later die in very strange circumstances. And Mort cuts almost all of that out and brings the speech back. And the feedback he gets is too much Lin Biao. And so he takes out a bunch more and he brings it back. Yeah. And he's told still too much Lin Biao. And Mort in frustration says, I have taken out 95% of it. And the answer, and this is the decision-making pathology, is no one knows what you took out, right? They're only going to know what's still in there. And I see all the time decision-makers talk themselves into terrible decisions because the terrible decision they're making is not as stupid as the four other things that were put on the table. I see. You know, I mean, I guess it's it's the, it's the decision-making equivalent of the Overton window. Yeah. Where... You know, you make one proposal that's absurd and suddenly a really bad idea looks reasonable by comparison. And you imagine your opponent is going to see that. Um, I, I wrote a novel about a new North Korean nuclear war. And in it, the South Koreans talk themselves into what they see as a limited and de-escalatory missile strike on the North Koreans because it's much smaller than the plan they have on the books. <laughs> but the yeah. North Koreans don't know the plan on the books. They only know the missiles that hit them. Right. Does that sort of thing happen just because bureaucracies are messing up? I mean, I think there's some famous yes minister scene where they talk about how they uh, get the decision that they want by ensuring that the least stupid decision <laughs> that they put on the table is, is the one that the, that the bureaucrat prefers. Is that also going on? Yes. Yes Minister is the finest documentary <laughs> on decision making that I have ever seen. I mean, I cannot say enough about that television program. It, to me, fundamentally captures the dynamics that we see play out all the time. And one thing I would, I would say is that that gets cleaned up in histories. And so often when we read about accounts after the fact, and I'm now thinking of a particular account in my field and I just don't feel like starting this fight, but I, I know of many cases where individuals take one side in an internal argument and they lose. And then as a public official, they're required to defend it. And then in a memoir, they make the decision sound like everybody agreed and it was all very straightforward and it made perfect sense. And it completely obscures the nature of the fight, often which is quite petty and, and has very little to do with the issue that's on the table and much more to do with 
issues that surround it. And so the thing I loved about Yes Minister is I know it's a comedy, but I have seen that behavior in Washington time and time again, you know. And honestly, the work of Armando Iannucci, I don't know if you've seen the thick of it. And that's that to me is much more true than any serious drama on those subjects I have ever seen. Hmm. Yeah, we'll, we'll stick up some links to some top clips on, on Yes Minister and maybe uh, from, from Anucci as well for anyone in the audience who has had the misfortune of not watching them already. Um, earlier, you mentioned that people lie to outsiders uh, from this community. Do, do they perceive themselves as lying because they have an agenda no. that they're seeking? No, okay. Uh, yeah, C- can you elaborate on the, on, the, on the lie? Well, let me say, some of them may, Okay. right? There is always a little bit of, I'm smarter than you and I can get away with this. But normally what it is, is it's it's a, there's a kind of ritual that must be performed in how one says things. And that ritual is typically enforced. So the one trivial example is if you say the United States is going to use nuclear weapons, you will quickly be corrected. And you will be told the United States uses nuclear weapons every day for deterrence. The word you're looking for is employ. Okay. <laughs> right? And so... Indeed, it's called the Nuclear Weapons Employment Guidance. And so it's not, I suppose, that people know they're lying, although there are individuals, I think, who are dishonest. But there, there is much, much more than that. There is a, a kind of culture of this is how we talk about these things. This is how we phrase things. This is how we describe things. And it makes it very hard to dissent. I see. And to disagree. I mean, I I recall I, I had an argument with someone once where that I was arguing for a new policy as an outsider. And the person kept telling me that that's not how they do it. And, and finally, I got frustrated and said, I know that's not how you do it. The way you do it is stupid. Do it a different <laughs> way. And and I that person looked at me like this was the most bizarre suggestion, you know. So there really is a kind of orthodox practice Right. That one is expected to adhere to. And so when one comes in from the outside, uh, like I always I always get a chuckle, not a negative chuckle, but um, I see in the EA language a lot of uh, deproliferation or anti-proliferation. And like that's the kind of stuff that would like immediately get you treated to a very tedious lecture uh, about why the phrase is non-proliferation and how non-proliferation really only refers to this very narrow area of, you know, and you would just be listening to this with your eyes rolling in your head like, (laughs) this is good faith engagement? Okay. Right, right. So I think listeners might be able to pick up that uh, you're someone who is happy to provide people with the benefit of their forthright opinion. Is that in part a reaction to this kind of, it sounds almost like there's a culture of stonewalling people who are not insiders in this community. And you're just like, no, I'm going to crash through that and I'm not going to be intimidated. No, it's a function of a couple of things. I grew up in rural Illinois, and so that is not a place where, I mean, it's a a place of extreme politeness because otherwise you'll get stabbed. Okay. But it's it's definitely not a place where, like, once the politeness falls, you don't keep playing these weird linguistic games. So it, it just culturally, it was very odd to me. And early on, I enjoyed it because I, I had these fantastic mentors and I'm fairly okay with words. So I could learn those games and I could play them really effectively. But I think just over time, when you learn something like that, it, it loses its interest. You know, it becomes, it's very predictable. I, I almost never go to talks in my own field anymore because I know what people are going to say. I could 
you know, it's like the old joke about the comedians convention where yeah. you know, somebody says number 47 and everyone laughs. I, that's what it's like. So I found it tedious and it it's antithetical to thinking clearly and creatively. And so at some point I just thought like, do I really want to do that with my life? Do I want to like go to the Pentagon every day? Do I want and, to be that person? And it's like, no, no, I don't. I can live in California and not wear a tie and say exactly what I think. And that's a good life for me, at least. Excellent. Okay, coming back to, yeah, a kind of a list of misunderstandings or, or bad ideas. Are there any maybe policy suggestions or, or ideas for making the world better that you've seen come from the effective altruism community or kind of adjacent, adjacent groups, which you think is seriously uh, wrongheaded in some way? I have not seen a lot of EA-specific recommendations. I have seen a fair amount of EA writing that tries to put numbers on things, which is an effort I generally support, that tries to understand what things are likely to happen. But what I haven't seen, and I have had a couple of conversations with friends of mine in the field about what bets we might plausibly make that would be influenced by this particular type of thinking about the world. But I don't know that those exist yet. Maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, maybe there is the nuclear equivalent of mosquito nets. Um, but I, <laughs> I, I don't, so. I don't, I don't, I don't think there is. You know? Yeah, I think, I think sadly, sadly, there's not. I suspect. So a lot of, I mean, the, the reason that we have generalist analysts is that the EA community as a whole, and I guess global priorities research as a discipline is still very significantly at the stage of trying to prioritize between different problems in the world. And so you need to have generalists because we don't want someone who only knows about nuclear issues. We want someone who knows a bit about that but can compare it with risks from pandemics or bioweapons or new uh, new weapons that might be developed and against compare that with global health potentially and compare that with climate change and so on. So... Someone who's doing that is pretty liable to to make errors uh, in each of their individual analyses. I guess especially if they don't check it with uh, with the domain expert in, in each case. But people, uh, I think, I've also seen a case where domain experts try their hand at this higher level global priorities research stuff, and they make they make terrible mistakes because kind of being a generalist is a is a specialism uh, of of its own in a way. Anyway, so when, when you're doing the global priorities research stuff, you're you're very interested to know what is the annual risk of nuclear war because that really features very prominently in the equation. So a lot of it has been trying to do this sort of risk assessment, figuring out how bad is the present situation. Then of course that's almost an easier question than figuring out what stuff you want to change <laughs> in order to make it better. Well, you know, so John Steinbrunner had a, a an analogous interest. But instead of imagining these different priorities that are competing, which is like a perfectly reasonable thing to do when you're trying to allocate funding, he was really interested in three or sometimes four sets of problems. I mean, the three big ones being climate change, nuclear war, and uh, pandemics. And his thinking was that they were essentially the same problem in that they were challenges that were too big for us to solve at a state level, right? Yeah. That a, a set of solutions pursued by sovereign states on individual bases would not fix these three problems. And so his intuition, which I think is right, is that the big things we need to do, I mean, not like the little policies, right? But the, the big conceptual stuff about how we think about our place in the world, how we organize our diplomacy, that the things we need to do are pretty much the same across those three areas because they're all cases where we have to learn to pool our sovereignty with other countries, work with countries that we might not like in pursuit of some shared interest. And honestly, it's the reason that I find 
nuclear risk to be such an interesting field is because it is, in some sense, the first real problem that human beings face where it's big enough that we might not make it. Yeah. Right? It's not the only problem. I'm just saying it's like the first. And we had violence for a long time, but it's the first time that like the scale of violence is such where you're like, you know, I, I don't know if we'll survive this in a like a meaningful way, right? And so you realize that like no matter how much you hate the Soviets, right, that you have a shared danger that compels you to cooperate. And and to me, that's a that's a wild idea. Yeah. Um, that's just, you know, that's a big thought. It's challenging for people to get their heads around it. It did take decades, I think, for people to get their heads around it or to, to fully embrace the idea that you had to cooperate with a group that you thought was evil and, and they thought that you were evil. <laughs> but nonetheless, you were yeah. better off together than apart in an odd way. I don't know if you ever saw the original movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Uh, uh, no, I know. No, I haven't. So... Americans, we're bad at big ideas. Uh, so when we confront big ideas, we either like throw it in a Western or throw it in a science fiction movie so that we can, you know, get our very pragmatic little heads around it. Uh, and the day the earth stood still is it's a parable about nuclear weapons where an alien shows up and says, you know, you settle your disputes with violence and that's your business. But now that you do space travel and nuclear weapons, your violence threatens to spill off your planet. And so, you know, you have like, you know, you know, some short amount of time, like 72 hours to like yeah. sort your lives out uh, or we're going to we're going to destroy you. Right? Okay. And the wow. alien is new and, and the alien is nuclear weapons. Right. It's this idea that there is this external threat that compels you to cooperate even with people you don't like. And I, I think it's a very powerful idea. It's the reason Ronald Reagan used to always say how our differences with the Soviet Union would fade if we were ever confronted with aliens. Now, I think that's a very optimistic reading of human history. I, I mean, as, a, as someone who's also a, a member of a Native American tribe, like, no, some of us will cooperate with the aliens. Like, that's... <laughs> okay, right, right, yes. You know, like, that's... Sadly, that's what we're like. And some of us will claim that the aliens don't exist, probably, as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, but that tale, I think, does work for people to try to think about how you could be facing a threat that is too big for you to solve on your own, and it forces you to work with people you don't like, which is, you know, tough. Yeah. I guess zooming out a little bit, uh, are there any bad ideas that you're constantly seeing among the general public or in, or in mass media that you kind of just bang your head against and be like, I can't believe I'm having to read this 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 nonsense again? Every time someone says mutual assured destruction, I want to take a hammer and <laughs> crush my own skull. Okay. Uh, I, I occasionally there use that There is no expression. such thing. Okay. Uh, t tell me more. No such thing. Okay. So the important thing to understand is that the context that gave us counterforce and countervalue, that early 1960s effort to impose some civilian control over strategic air command... Uh, also gives us this phrase, mutual assured destruction. Uh, what happened was once Strategic Air Command embraced counterforce and said, this is great, we can still hit cities, but we're going to have 20 times as many nuclear weapons because I'm hitting the factory or the Kremlin. The Kennedy administration was like, wow, can I swear on this podcast? Uh, <laughs> this is a podcast for grown-ups. We're talking about nuclear war here. So yes, I think you can Proverbially, swear. they were like, shit, right? We... We, we, we have now, like, created this situation yeah. where the we've justified much larger increases in nuclear forces than we really wanted to. 
And so uh, largely a, a fellow named Alan Entoven comes up with this idea of a thought experiment. Okay, so this is a thought experiment. This is not a real thing. This is just a, a way of thinking like, how many nuclear weapons do we really need? Is there some theoretical limit after which more is worthless? And so he imagines that we have a force of one megaton bombs. Now, we don't have a force of just one megaton bombs, but it's a thought experiment. So, so one, one, one megaton, just for reference, is, is not that big. Is that right? No, no. It's oh, no. much. Oh. It, uh, Hiroshima it's was, okay. you know, 10, 15 kilotons. So this is. I see. Okay. hundred times that. You know, exactly. Okay. EA people can do math. That's good. Uh, <laughs> it's nice. Numeracy. It's the new literacy. So he imagines you have this force of these very large bombs and you just drop them sequentially on the Soviet Union to maximize damage. Literally not our policy, but this is a thought experiment. And then he draws two curves, right? One showing the damage each successive bomb does to Soviet industry and to Soviet population. And as you might imagine, the first bomb you drop on central Moscow does a lot of damage. The second one on Leningrad at the time does not quite as much, but a lot. But eventually it, the curve levels off. And it, it levels off at about 400 bombs, and the thought experiment is complete. The view is, look, the Soviets don't know what we target. They don't know what we're going to do. But if they know that we can put 400 megatons on the Soviet Union, then after that, we're just making the rubble bounce, and we have enough. And so the Kennedy people try to cap the arsenal, calling this assured destruction. We just need to have the ability to assure the destruction of the Soviet Union. And the people who want more nuclear weapons hate it. They say it doesn't have a theory of victory. Okay. Right? And so to mock it, it's a calumny. Donald Brennan and Herman Kahn and others start calling it mutual assured destruction, which is to mean suicide, uh, or they call it assured vulnerability. These are like attacks. And assured destruction is just a Kennedy thing. I mean, it lives on into Johnson, but it's not anything any future president really accepts. You know, Carter has something called the countervailing strategy, which is about us winning a nuclear war. Reagan... His guidance talks about us prevailing in a nuclear war. And so what I think, the reason I think mutual assured destruction is so sticky as a, as a concept is, even if it's not a real thing, it is also the case that even at the time that Ronald Reagan has a paper that he signs that says the policy of the United States is to prevail in a protract, protracted nuclear war over the Soviet Union, he also announces that a, a nuclear war can never be won and must not be fought. Right. So his policy is to win a nuclear war. And he, he says, I don't believe that. I do think that presidents often look at this whole business and say it's insane. And then they silently dissent or defect. Right. But they don't they don't change the policy. They just they become disconnected. And so I do think the reason it sticks is because we do often want presidents to admit publicly that they have defected from this in the hopes that if they say things like, I believe in mutual assured destruction, even if it's not really a thing, it would lead to policy change. Okay. I don't quite get how it's not not a thing. I mean, maybe maybe on paper it's kind of not in the policy anymore. Maybe it never was called that in the, in the, in the official policies exactly. But isn't it still the case that, you know, when Russia and the US are kind of fighting a proxy war in Ukraine, the fact that they could both destroy one another and that if things got to some point they they would both bomb one another and it would and both of their societies would be ruined doesn't that kind of constrain and their risk aversion doesn't that kind of constrain their actions and, and, and yeah and, and, and affect what that's, they do that's just deterrence okay. the whole idea of mutual assured destruction is you accept the possibility of reciprocal deterrence hmm. and our policy is not to do that our policy is to be able to prevail i see so so you're saying people 
like I mean, I thought that the US policy to some degree was to accept mutually assured destruction and maybe exactly. kind of built into the built into the treaties with Russia that there'll there'll be a sufficient arsenal that both countries would be would be wrecked. But actually that's not what's going on. The US does it still have an idea that it could win a nuclear war with, with Russia? Yes. Yes. Okay. Go look at the declassified O plan. How would that how would that play out? Uh so the idea is you deter. And if you fail to deter, I believe the next phase is shape. I actually have the declassified <laughs> O plan in front of me. I can look this up. Sorry, this is so goofy. I, I really hate the way they phrase these things. There's phase zero, <laughs> yeah. which is shape. Phase one is deter. That's where you're okay. attempting to deter a threat. So so I guess shape is kind of shape the situation through your general foreign policy all the time. And then at the point where there's a conflict on the table, then you're engaged in deterrence. Okay, Exactly. Yeah. Phase three is, or phase two, rather, because we started with zero, is seize the initiative, <laughs> Yeah, which is, I don't know, deterrence plus. <laughs> yeah. And phase three is dominate. Mm. And how exactly would the U.S. dominate Russia in a nuclear war? So that is redacted. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so all we have is during this phase, U.S. Stratcom, in collaboration with the applicable uh, GCCs, Uh, conducts operations integrated across all mission areas in order to defeat adversaries and return to phase zero on terms acceptable to the U.S. U.S. (laughs) Stratcom is directed by the president, redacted. I see. So you can see why people think that actually the policy is mutually mutually assured. Yeah, because it's freaking madness. But but isn't that actually what's happening? That the reason the U.S. and Russia tread carefully around one another, the reason that they actually are deterred from getting too close to shooting one another is because mutually assured destruction kind of is the result. So I agree with you to a point, but this is where my work maybe causes us to diverge. Okay. As I say, I believe that presidents silently defect from this. I think they get the briefing and they say, what the hell is this? "Ah, That doesn't seem very sensible to me. Yeah. But because it's a political loser, because it's abstract, because it's complicated, they allow the plans to be written. They spend the money to acquire the forces. They select senior officials who believe in the mission. And what I think they have concluded is that because they are silently defecting, they know they'll never do it. I see. And I think that is a terrible mistake because we see All the time, we see presidents get boxed in because they don't appreciate, they overestimate their power and they underestimate the structural constraints that will exist in terms of time, their own stress level, the advice they're giving or getting. And there's a great example of this in Fred Kaplan's other great nuclear book, where there's a a war game that's being fought and The war game occurs at two levels, the so-called deputies level and then the principals level. So the deputies are like the deputy secretary of state. The principal is like the secretary of state. So you do it once with the number twos and then once with the number ones. You play the game twice. And in the game, Russia uses one nuclear weapon, which I don't think is very realistic, but like we'll just roll with it. The deputies decide one nuclear weapon is not going to make a difference to the war. Terrible risk of escalation. We're just going to go ahead and win the war. And the punishment for the Russians is they lose the war and everybody thinks they're awful. They play it again at the principal's level, and the principals decide they they must respond with a nuclear weapon. I see. That they feel that their credibility is somehow on the line in a way the deputies don't feel, right? The deputies can be more dispassionate in some sense. 
but they're terrified to hit the Russians back with a nuclear weapon, right? Because the Russians using a nuclear weapon against like Poland is one thing, us actually hitting Russia with one of our nuclear weapons, potentially very escalatory. And so they flounder around for a while before deciding that they're going to nuke Belarus, which is not even a part of the conflict in the game. Right. And I, to me, what that illustrates is when you are in a situation that you have not fully anticipated and you're kind of making it up as you go along, and if you're feeling some stress and if you're getting some advice that's maybe not great, it's maybe hard to silently defect anymore when you have invested all of this time and energy in creating this system. So that's that's why I say, even though I don't think mutual assured destruction is, is a thing, it's not a policy, it's something U.S. rejects, I think presidents, when you have them in a calm moment, they know that's madness. Yeah. I am not worried about what they're going to do in a calm moment. I worry what they're going to do in a not calm moment when that happens. What do you mean by a non a non calm moment? So, so, so I suppose a typical person, maybe me, worries about the situation where there's a, maybe a false alarm that they think the US is being attacked by hundreds and hundreds of nuclear weapons, but actually they're not. And you know, the, the call comes at 3 a.m. and then maybe they're stressed out and they decide to, to retaliate mistakenly. Is that what you mean by a call moment? Um, that is definitely a moment. I, I have a different set of scenarios in my mind, but what I would say is that a 3 a.m. phone call is probably not going to result in a nuclear war unless it happens against the backdrop of a bunch of other crises. Right. Which, by the way, we have seen. Yeah. You know, 1983 was a terrifying year, not because there was any particular, I mean, there were false alarms, but nothing sort of lined up. But what's terrifying about 1983 is how the background kept getting amped up and that a false alarm at the wrong time might really have, have been misinterpreted. I see. So I, I do worry. But more than that, you know, I worry about escalation. You know, the U.S. is terribly worried about a, a particular scenario, which I, I think is quite unlikely, but it's the Russians use a single nuclear weapon, right? That's the scenario in the war game I mentioned, and they do it to signal. And we're really committed to the idea of signaling back to the point that the Trump administration created and Biden has kept a, a low-yield nuclear weapon, which is still like a Hiroshima-sized nuclear weapon, but a low-yield nuclear weapon on our submarines with the express purpose that if they were to use a nuclear weapon in Europe, we would hit a target in Russia with one of our own. And we would do this off a submarine, which, by the way, also carries all the strategic warheads that we would use for a big strike. Yeah. The Russians have been absolutely clear that if they see submarine-launched ballistic missiles coming at Russia, even if it's only one, they're going to assume that there are more that they can't see, and they are not going to wait. They're not going to wait for the thing to explode and then measure its yield and then decide what to do. They see something come up out of the water, it's go time. So... We have this sort of fundamental unresolved issue where we have a debate on our side about whether or not they really mean that. And they have a debate about whether we'd really do that. And so when I say a not calm moment, I mean a situation where there is a crisis where either the Russians have used a single nuclear weapon or maybe we just think they have. And and the president is now asked to execute this strategy, which he publicly supports and, you know, it's on the piece of paper he signed and he's put the weapons there and he's being told it will be fine. And, you know, maybe it will be fine. Maybe it'll be 100% fine. I, I like 100% worry it's not. And that's yeah, that's what yeah. I mean by not a calm moment. Okay. Uh, you're saying calm moment, C-A-L-M. Yeah. 
Okay. My crappy, I was hearing uh, I was hearing C A L L. Okay, but that was a fantastic oh. answer. None the I was hearing cool and non cool. Uh, but that was a, that was a very instructive answer. Uh, none, nonetheless, two, two countries separated by a common language. Yeah, but see, people hear your accent and they think you're smart. People hear my accent. Oh, and they're like, I'm not British. I'm Australian. I'm afraid. I I, I don't know. It doesn't I don't know. matter. Okay, I don't it know what they matter. think. But uh, yeah, they, they they know I'm not from where they are, but they they can't they often can't place it. Um, okay, yeah, we're, we're jumping around all over the place here, but. Yeah, I really want to ask you something that I've heard kind of consistently. I, I think listening to some of you, some of your show, uh, talking to other people about nuclear weapons and the, and, the, and the history during the Cold War, is this impression that nuclear policy was not set by strategic considerations as much as it was set by budgetary considerations for different competing parts of the U.S. military? No, it's just a total coincidence <laughs> that. The budgets for the three services are exactly the same and that the Navy and the Air Force are both in the business and that we have, you know, missiles on land and missiles at sea, but they're not the same missile. Just a total coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can you elaborate on what what effect that has had? And maybe also why, you know, if I, if you're a general, you're one of the people leading one of these forces, the Air Force and the Navy, don't you take your responsibility to the United States, to its security, seriously enough to no. put... Okay, okay. sorry, okay. go I mean, on, this go is, on. This is like the old joke about the two U.S. nuclear labs. In the U.S., we have yeah. two design labs, and uh, they used to say it about each other, but it would go something like the folks at Los Alamos would say that the Soviets are the adversary, but Livermore is the enemy. Okay. <laughs> we have seen consistently in the U.S., very high levels of inter-service rivalry. And we think that's generally a good thing, right? We That's kind of our competition, free market idea. And the last real effort to unify those services was the Truman administration, which really wanted to weaken the Navy and, and abolish the Marine Corps. Uh, and that led to the very famous revolt of the admirals, which was a pretty severe crisis in civil-military relations. As it happens, I think Truman was wrong about the Navy, but right about civilian control of the military. Okay. Um, so, no, we, you know, each of our military services has their own unique camouflage patterns. You know, what I would say charitably to those folks is that because they have distinct service cultures, they sincerely believe that their way of war and that their contribution is the best one. And, you know, you pick. Right. So if you go into the Navy, it's because you believe so you in the go Navy. into the one that you back yeah. and you're inculcated with a worldview. And so I, I don't think people are purely um, craven, but I do think that it's very telling that the thing that I say that makes people the angriest is when I suggest the U.S. is about to buy a new ground based ICBM. Yeah, we have a perfectly serviceable missile on our submarines that you could put in those silos. It would cost a fraction of of replacing the ICBM with a new one. And the Air Force hates it. And I, I've had this argument over about 10 years now. And every two, three years, the Air Force has a new reason they can't do it. It's never the same reason. And I think what it ultimately comes down to is that it's just this service pride and prerogative and autonomy that we see play out. I mean, honestly, we see it in um, Counterforce. The reason that the Strategic Air Command embraced counterforce when it was presented to them was precisely because the Navy had started to get in the business of deterrence and the Navy systems were inaccurate and they could really only hit cities. Okay. And so this was a moment which Strategic Air Command could say, ah, see, we have something better. So you have all these Navy officers who talked about how terrible nuclear weapons were. You shouldn't target cities. 
until they get inaccurate missiles. And then they talk about how minimum deterrence is the only way to go and we don't need all these Air Force things until those missiles become accurate enough and then they go right into counterforce. And like, <laughs> it's hard not to be cynical. Right, right. I mean, I, I think that this is an area where someone who's kind of idealistic like me is at risk of just producing completely useless analysis because my assumption coming in would be that we need to figure out a way in which you can preserve the United States' security while minimizing the risk of accidental nuclear war or minimizing the risk of escalation. Whereas actually what the question you need to ask is, how can we minimize the risk of escalation, the risk of nuclear war without damaging the, <laughs> the Navy's budget? And that's, that's the actual issue at play. Yes. Um, and that, that might call for very different options. Yes, I, I think that's exactly right. If you look at one of the systems that the Obama administration was able to eliminate, uh, it was the sea-launched nuclear-armed cruise missile, which had been in storage since uh, George H.W. Bush announced a series of initiatives in 1991. I think in 92, it went into storage. So it sat there for you know two decades. Uh, the way that the Obama administration was able to retire it is that the Navy hated it. I see. Why? Because... In general, the military is not the problem with nuclear weapons. There are elements in the military that are very attached to their nuclear weapons. But Navy officers who drive attack submarines, which is where this thing would be deployed, don't want to spend the time training to handle nuclear weapons for what they consider to be a fairly unlikely scenario. They want to go out and practice sinking ships and other submarines. Like, that's mm. that's what they're interested cool. in doing. And so, yes, and so the idea that they would have to select a few boats every year to go do this training, to upload this archaic system that they thought they were never going to use, made them really hate it. It was actually the civilians that Obama appointed that wanted to replace the system. Okay, right. Yeah, what, what are some distortions in the U.S.'s military arsenal today that are generated by these budgetary competition concerns? The existence of land-based ICBMs strikes me as one of the major ones, because we often hear that the United States cannot ride out a nuclear attack, right? We have to be able to launch under attack because our missiles and silos are vulnerable. Tom Schelling wrote a lovely article in the 80s where he just pointed out, like, if you didn't have missiles and silos, you would not have this problem. Right. And he actually called land-based missiles an embarrassment. You could put them all on submarines. I see. Which is what... Yeah. The French do, and I mean, the French have a small aircraft delivered capability, but it's what the British do. If we had two or three times the number of submarines at sea, attacking the U.S. would be hopeless. Yeah. Um, and you could even leave some of them in port if you wanted to make sure that the Russians had to strike a U.S. city. Yeah. Right. So, so, so which branch does the land based silos? Is that the, the, the army? Air Force? The, the Air Force. No, it's the, the Air Force. The Air Force won this in a battle with the army. <laughs> Okay. Well, if the Air Force can do land-based silos, why can't we just get the Air Force to do uh, submarines instead? Maybe they can get the budget to build their own I mean, set of nuclear subs. You know, it would be, it, turnabout is fair play because, you know, the Air Force was very against the Navy having its own air air component. Right, um, right, right. That was, that was a huge fight. Yeah, the Army got, the Army got air defense missiles. So missile defense systems okay. are Army. Uh, not see. that we have nuclear armed ones anymore, but that was their mission. And the Air Force got got the the strike missiles. That was a huge fight, by the way. Okay. Did the Marines get their own nukes to play with? No, no although not, not, not the Coast Guard. No, they got screwed. Okay. The the Marines are now for the first time getting longer range uh, conventional missiles. So okay. maybe 
maybe someday. But yeah, that stuff matters. That service prerogative absolutely matters. Yeah. I've seen an Air Force general fight with an Army general about how useless missile defense is. And you will not be surprised that the Army general was in favor of it. And the Air Force general (laughs) was like, you know, uh, you go with offense. You don't shoot the missile down. You you deter and and you defeat or dominate. Makes me feel like I'm approaching decision-making and bureaucracy within 80,000 hours wrong. I should just be trying to maximize the podcast budget, finding excuses to hire dozens of people to <laughs> expand our empire. You know, I mean, you joke about that, but if you look at think tanks yeah. in D.C., they all exhibit steady growth, right? There is an ideology of growth. No one sits down and says, you know, I think eight people is the right number for this think tank. Yeah. And I, I think that's a really... It's an oddity, I suppose. Yeah. Or you come in and say, you know, this is 10% too big. <laughs> yeah, no one ever does that, right? People build empires. And, you know, maybe like, maybe Washington is an exception this way. But I, I don't know. I, I see this stuff on display in other places. For sure. Another cynical explanation I've heard for distortions in nuclear policy is that there are particular companies that make a whole lot of money manufacturing all of these all of these weapons and, and systems. And of course, they have advocates in DC defending their interests, I suppose, and explaining the, the value that's being provided. And, and they might have larger budgets than, than I suppose the, uh, the non-proliferation folks do. do. Do you think that is, a, is an important issue as well, uh, you know, anywhere near the same level as these inter-service rivalries? I don't think it's as bad. I mean, it's definitely the case that defense contractors want to make money and that they lobby for things. But my sense of them is always that they're pretty much, as long as the money shows up, you know, they'll do anything. Mm, okay. And so if we had a sensible agenda for reducing nuclear risk, what we would need to do is to simply account for the fact that they're not going to argue themselves out of business. And so we'd have to imagine what their business lines looked like. And honestly, it's what the Clinton administration did with the nuclear test ban, right? The U.S. stops nuclear testing in the 90s. Clinton signs a treaty that prohibits all nuclear testing. And it corresponds with a massive investment in what's called the Stockpile Stewardship Program, in which the the labs, which are privately run, right? At the time, they were both run by, well, the two design labs were both run by the University of California, Now they're run by consortia, but they promised them generous funding for these new activities. And, you know, I see the labs got behind it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Pushing on a little bit. Where where do you think the effective altruism community can potentially add the most value to, to this space, given our particular strengths and weaknesses? Well, definitely the fact that there is funding gives you power, uh, The thing about my community is it is in a constant state of funding contraction. And so just giving money doesn't like fix the problems because it just replicates the problems that we've had in the past. But it it, I I would be not honest if I didn't say people will pay attention because, you know, you are potentially the difference between them being employed or not. Right. Uh, What I think substantively you bring, right, what I'd like to see that influence used for is the analytic rigor and method I see on display. The insistence that we try to estimate the likelihood of, a, of, of nuclear war, the insistence that we try to understand what the pathways are with some effort at quantifying them, 
that we be explicit about models of change. All those things that you all do naturally or maybe ideologically because it's how you look at the world, those are the things that are missing in my community. Which, by the way, is why people get worked up about it. Because it's... Okay. As I think I said in the post, it's why dinosaurs don't like asteroids. So so they find it... Yeah, so suppose my natural way of thinking would be to say, well, first we analyze what is the background rate of nuclear war now, and then we might consider various policy changes and try to figure out, you know, has that reduced it by 10%? Has it made it more volatile? And, 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 you're, and you're trying to, I mean, obviously these things are all estimates. We're not robots who just go through uh, following these things uh, without any critical analysis. But yeah, the desire to roughly put numbers on things, to sense check them, and also I think to aid communication between people. So to, to, to make sure that they, uh, they're at least broadly understanding what one another are trying to say. Is that threatening to people who are part of this existing way of thinking about things because I suppose it would potentially damage some of their analysis or they just don't feel comfortable doing it personally? I think they just don't feel comfortable doing it personally. I, I often think about sports analogies are so overused and I try not to use them, but I really do think a lot about in the 1970s when the first efforts were made to look at baseball analytically. And baseball fans hated it. I mean, just despised it. And it was clear we were like not collecting the right kind of data and weren't understanding what resulted in (laughs) teams winning games, you know? And I I just, and I, I always find the resistance to it fascinating because like, don't you just want to win the game? And, and the answer is no, I want to win the game playing in a certain style because I have this emotional attachment to it. And I think it's just hard for people to let go of those things. Right, right. Yeah, just spitballing it. Another thing that I think the effective activism community might be able to bring to the table is just a, a very strong open-mindedness about what might be good. We, we really don't have any dog in this fight at this point. Like, I mean, I certainly don't. And as far as I can tell, other people uh, don't. There's a lot of open-mindedness to different approaches to, to funding different ways of, of, of moving things. And maybe that's a benefit. Uh, I, I suppose things might not stay that way in decades' time. But, but at this point, I think nothing's really been crystallized. I think that's right. There are two aspects of that that I find valuable. One is being non-ideological. These debates have gotten pretty stale. And as somebody who sort of enjoys generating new policy ideas, let me tell you, the thing that I do that gets the least (laughs) positive reaction is suggesting that the way we've been going about something is wrong and we should try something different. You know, I mean, there's even this phrase which comes out of the military, right? It's the the good idea fairy, like the idea that you're coming along with like good ideas. <laughs> Wait, what? I've never heard you, this concept. That's so great. The good idea fairy, like you're you're you're. We have this way. We've been doing things. We've been fighting the good fight. We know the right answer, and and you know now you're coming along and you're suggesting we change everything. Uh, I, and people so, really don't like that. And so the good idea fairy is a term of derision for someone who thinks yes. they've had a good a new idea. Yes. Oh wow. Yeah. Huh. Wow. Okay. Just uh, as, a, as, an, as an aside for listeners, uh, yeah, you might be interested too. There's this um, term that's slightly come into vogue in policy analysis in the UK called Cheem's Mindset. And Cheem's Mindset is this, uh, yeah, it's, it's a mindset that uh, people argue that lots of folks in policy analysis have, 
where if you ever suggest doing something much better or very different than what's already been going, then you're immediately accused of being naive and just not understanding the, the, the complexity and not understanding that nothing, that in reality, nothing could ever work. Things couldn't really be better. Uh, and this is kind of an, ex- an instinctive pose that a lot of people take. And I don't entirely understand why, but I, I think what one explanation that's given is that it allows someone who's an insider to maybe seem wiser uh, than people who are coming in from outside, suggesting that things, that the world could be better. Because <laughs> they, of course, know all of the unintended side effects and and they understand that, in fact, yeah, things could never be changed in any significant way. I think that is both the dominant narrative for insiders who are in favor of the current approach to nuclear weapons, but it is also surprisingly dominant among those of us who think that the current approach is not optimal. Yeah. Okay. Uh, In part because if you, it's, there's a certain guild quality, like I I, I think very fondly of studying under John and, 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 and Tom, and I like to think that they're right, and I like that kind of continuity. And so they were pretty open-minded. That's the second piece you get out of this, which is you could argue with them and they would change their mind. But for a lot of people, changing your mind is, you know, it's like giving up on your team. Huh. Is there, is there an issue maybe that as I understand it, a lot of people in this field are now approaching the end of their, their careers. So kind of the, maybe the dominant age is to be in your 50s and 60s. And perhaps it's people in their 20s who tend to bring the energy for new ideas because they want to take, they want to have a new position. They want to have something to contribute and they haven't already absorbed all of the existing knowledge. Right. And if you think about that, the reason for that is because of the funding models that we have. Hmm. Okay. You have a f- small number of large charitable organizations which are fairly risk averse so i mean macarthur is now the macarthur foundation is now leaving the field but you still have the carnegie corporation of new york and i mean i love like i have zero complaints uh, about how i've been treated i mean in my career i you know macarthur paid for my graduate school like these individuals know me oh these groups owe me nothing like i am so grateful but i got all of that through my advisor i see right so yeah and whenever people say about like, oh, well, let's fund young people, that never means give a check to a young person. That means give a check to an old person who will then tell the young person what to do. And, and, and they're just very reluctant. So simply funding different people, funding younger people, taking chances on things that are unusual. I like to joke that a lot of projects are too good to fund. That open-mindedness, that willing to embrace risk, that willingness to place you know, bets that maybe don't have a high success, a high likelihood of payoff, but if they do, would be enormous. Um, all those represent diversity in grant making. Whereas right now we have, I think, a very uh, a very homogenous grant making style that privileges a small number of, of people, of whom, like, I am luckily one. But, you know, that's yeah. not a healthy thing. <laughs> should, yeah, there, there should be more going on. So the, the situation where the EA community and philanthropists who are kind of inspired by an EA-style mindset, that, that that group might be able to have significant influence over the, the nuclear security space through, through, through funding, um, through, through having access to, to funding that otherwise might not be available. That's a relatively new situation. And I guess as that's become evident, I, I think that community is, is professionalizing and is beginning to hire in all subject subject matter experts in order exactly to fill the gaps that you're that you're troubled by that, that could allow someone like me to make really stupid suggestions. But it sounds like there's a tricky balance here because you're saying the existing discipline and the ideas are somewhat sterile and, and risk averse and stale. 
And there's a there's a possibility that you'd hire in exactly the expertise that you need to correct your errors, but that those folks will convince you that nothing nothing can ever be done, nothing could be better. You just have to fund the same stuff as always. I mean, this very famously happened in a story I probably shouldn't tell on the podcast, but let, let us just say that there are lots of instances where people come into this field wanting to make a big difference and a big change, and they surround themselves with starry names and those people immediately begin the, is it Cheem's mindset? Cheem's mindset. Well, I'll stick up a link to the blog post and I'll share it with you so you can see, see the person. Yeah. Where they say, you know, ah, the big stuff you want to do. Ah, you know, we need to set our sights. You know, it's complicated. Things are this way for a reason. And, and obviously some of that is valuable. It's always partly true. Right? Yeah. It is always partly true, but you can be captured um, and, and, you know, I suppose like all things in life, there isn't a simple rule book. It is it is an issue of balance and course correction. And there's a certain art in knowing when you've gone too far in one direction or the other. But yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a fundamental tension. Yeah. Okay. I just want to come back to this issue where you, I think you wrote this uh, in, a, in a comment online. Uh, you, you said, my community is dominated by the obscure and arcane and kept that way with an absurd amount of, of gatekeeping. Yeah. What is the... What's the what's the goal of that of the goalkeeping? Do, do people perceive themselves as engaged in, in in gatekeeping, or is it maybe they they notice that someone is talking about things in an imprecise way, and they're like, "Oh, this person is an amateur. They don't have all the established knowledge that I do, and I need to make sure that they understand. I put them in their place." It's it's the ideology of hazing. I mean, how many people have you met who went through some hazing experience, and they are absolutely convinced that because they went through the hazing, everybody else needs to go through the hazing too? You know, you spend years, whether it's you're working professionally or you're going to school to learn the language and the games. And you're not doing it overtly, right? You're not, you're not going to graduate school saying, like, I am going to learn how to play these language games. It's you go to graduate school and you're educated and you stop thinking of it as hazing. You start thinking of it as your inculcation into the field. And I think it's a very human thing to then replicate that. It also has the side effect of selecting for a particular group of people with a particular set of ideas, and it keeps the riffraff out, you know? So you are able to filter dissent and silence dissent, which you want to do because you've been selected into the group and you you agree with the idea. You're a winner of the current system. So why would you want someone to shake it up? Yeah, and I, it's not that people aren't nice and generous in that community. I mean- I learned to play these games from a lot of people who hate my views. It's it's not like they are terrible human beings. And so I, I'm not trying to single out individuals as being awful. I, I'm just saying that when I see students or people from the outside, because you don't necessarily have to be young or a student, try to engage with my community, I, it's just I, I observe the pathology on display. And I, I don't, I, again, I don't think it's driven by any kind of hostility or hatred, but it it stinks. Yeah. So, so this phenomenon exists in most places to some degree. I'm sure I've done something like this uh, in, uh, probably many times where someone says something not quite right. And, you know, I'm so used to, I, I've like heard so much of a debate back and forth that issues that are actually not that substantive feel very important to me. So like I say mosquito nets and you're like, actually, it's mosquito mitigation because nets yeah. are not the only strategy. <laughs> and I was like, oh, come on. It's very important that you, yeah, get exactly that, exactly right. Um 
Do, do you think that this issue is worse in the nuclear security space? And, and if so, is there, is, there a, is there an underlying reason for that? I think it's worse because of secrecy. A lot of things you can only acquire by having a clearance or by being told things you're not supposed to know. But in that case, you don't really know if what you've been told is true. And also by the arcane and slightly technical nature of the subject matter. Okay. Right? So the O-plan is classified. How are you going to know what our nuclear strategy is? Because you're not allowed to see it. Well, I shouldn't say strategy, right? That's okay. me. <laughs> what, what, is the, what, is the, what is the employment plan, right? Uh, and so just that combination of secrecy and, and, and the technical nature of it, I think just naturally lends itself to that kind of long period of apprenticeship where it, you, you really don't know what you're talking about until you've been doing it a long time. And at that point, like, who wants to throw that all away in dissent unless you are like me and you want to like live in California or you're like Dan Ellsberg who, you know, went crazy in a good way. I mean, but like, yeah. you know, I mean, Mort Halperin, my, my, one of my mentors, you know, he and Dan are very close uh, Nixon accused them of being drug buddies in uh, at one point. And Mort had a very similar experience where having gone through this whole process and mastered it and being an assistant secretary at like 29 years old was just like, what am I doing? But almost nobody does that. Yeah. So... Yeah, I, I thought coming in that you might shit talk me and my crew more than more than you and your crew, but uh, oh, it seems I, like it's, it's I, kind of been the other way around. I almost want to, so I want to hear some good things about your community for, for for balance now. Okay, so there are lots of good things uh, about my community. It's a broad. I mean, that's like a broad. That's a very broad question. So, like, good things sure. like why can it be a nice place to work? Uh, I mean, I think the main good thing is that for the most part, the people in my community are very much like the EA community in that their primary motivation is making the world a better place. And that's a pretty unusual thing for a person. I see. Right? And, like, some people do pretty well by it, but, like, a lot of people I know make very little money. And and they make very little money the entire course of their career. And they retire having spent a career that, you know, they've lost most of the fights they were in. They haven't succeeded in making the world a better place. And yet they, you know, have dedicated, what is it, the 80,000 hours that they have, right, solely to this thankless, seemingly impossible task. And that can sometimes be a little aggravating, but like you, I think you have to sort of really like that about people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it does seem like, there's a lot of moral seriousness uh, in the, in the question. It tends to attract people who take the issue extremely seriously, and I and I guess yeah. I mean, maybe even the, the gatekeeping is partly a reflection of how seriously people people take the issue. And and I suppose you know a benefit of gatekeeping to some degree is that while it might make it hard to have new ideas or to have some revolution in, in thinking, it does keep out bad ideas. And you might think this is an area where we don't really want to be <laughs> playing around too much. Uh, maybe maybe some risk aversion is appropriate. And you know we haven't had a nuclear war yet, so. You you know, why change what's uh, what's already working? Well, you know, it's a funny thing. I'm not someone who actually is a fan of the disarmament frame for reducing nuclear risk. Uh, I think our goal really ought to be reducing the risk of nuclear war. But, and this is a really important but, the idea that we are going to base our security on these weapons forever means that deterrence will eventually fail. Yeah. And if you do it long enough and it will fail catastrophically. So I 
I am one of these people who thinks, like, the goal is to reduce the risk of nuclear war. In the near term, that probably doesn't mean disarmament. But over the 100 or 1,000-year time frame, it, it probably has to mean disarmament, right? And, and so you can sort of say, I'm, I'm using nuclear weapons to establish a system of deterrence to buy myself time to transition to something else. And, like, I need deterrence to function. I need not to have an accidental nuclear war so we live long enough um, but even though I'm not like a huge fan of of, of disarmament as a, as an organizing principle in what we do, I genuinely believe that like I don't like we got to get there at some point. Like I don't want to do this right. for a thousand years. Yeah, yeah. That so so the idea there is that deterrence relies to function on the possibility that people will use nuclear weapons. Uh, if you knew that you weren't going to use them then deterrence would cease to function as a mechanism to scare people. And so there almost has to be some minimum irreducible level of risk each year of things going wrong. Uh, and so, sure, you might be able to use deterrence for 100 years while you, until you figure out something better. But, uh, but it's a system that is built to fail sooner or later. I think that is the most important thing that people fail to grasp. We have these very rational models where we imagine it would never make sense to do this. And like, that's fine, except for if that were true, then deterrence would cease to function because you could just go right up to the brink every time and no one would want to push the button. Uh, Tom Schelling called it the threat that leaves something to chance. I see. Unless there is something left to chance, it can't function. And once something is left to chance, then over very long time scales, uh, you are in some trouble. I guess the listener might have the idea that you'd say, well, let's assume that there's only two actors, they're completely rational, and hypothetically, they have total control over the missiles, and they have, you know, at any point in time, two options. One is launch the missiles, one don't launch the missiles. It's always in their interest not to launch the missiles because they'll see missiles flying back. And so you could indefinitely have this deterrence functioning as a, uh, pre- preventing anyone from pressing the button. Why is that the wrong way to think about it? Um, it's the wrong way to think about it for a few reasons. The first is that well, first, there's not two now, there's three, right? Yeah, we have right. two serious arms races playing out. Um, first, political leaders are not as good at decision-making as that model suggests. I spend a lot of time talking to not just people in my field, but I, I really enjoy talking to politicians and other people who are much more senior. And it's not that they're dumb, but they are selected for other talents, You know, if you are the president of the United States, you are expected to be as good on the issue of nuclear war and peace as you are on financial reform, as you are on policing reform. And you have to go seamlessly from one meeting to another managing all these issues. And so you are working at a level of abstraction. And I find that the best politicians have a few simple ideas about the world that seem to work across a whole bunch of issue areas. That's not optimizing, right? That's satisficing. Yeah. And I I think that entails some risk. So the decision makers, I think, are not so perfect, and which, by the way, we see right now. I mean, Vladimir Putin absolutely believed that Ukraine would collapse. Yeah. Right? If Ukraine had had nuclear weapons, I believe Vladimir Putin would have invaded anyway because his assumption was Zelensky would flee and he would take over the country with the nuclear weapons. And, right. like, he would have been wrong about that. Just, and we don't know just how would that would have played out. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one thing. The second is, you know, I, I love game. I love game theory. I love models. 
but they rely so much on the quality of the information you have. And the scenario is not that Joe Biden wakes up and thinks, I want to start a nuclear war with Russia today. It's that he wakes up and he is told that he does not have a choice because the Russian attack is coming. And and it is better for us to go first than to go second. And it's regrettable, but it makes a big difference in the outcome if we go first. And so he has to decide if that's true. And, you know, maybe he, maybe he decides to run the risk. Maybe he doesn't. You just don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose... In the simplest model, it does make sense on paper. But if you actually look at the world as it's playing out in real life, it's extremely clear how this doesn't apply, both from what we're seeing in Ukraine this year makes it patently obvious. And then also what we're seeing in Taiwan now, we, it's clear that the risk of things accidentally escalating and the US getting involved in a war with China or Russia is not zero. It's not zero, that's for sure. I, you know, as Kennedy said, there's always some son of a bitch who doesn't get the message. I mean, the thing is, it works most of the time. You yeah. know, I... I I spend a lot of time thinking about what the risk of a nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia or the U.S. and China is. And, you know, I mean, my answer is it's it's like, you know, one in a one in a hundred, one in a thousand. It's a small number. You know, it's a really small number on a day to day basis. It really only is when you compound the risk over time and account for the severity of the event that you realize that that it becomes evident what the problem is. Yeah. Who's doing the best work in your field? Uh, yeah, is there anything that you can really recommend that someone who wants to get a bit more on top of these issues, what should they go read or listen to? Well, the first thing I would say is the old stuff is really good. You know, we've, we've been at this for 70 years and there is a tendency to privilege the work we do now. But one of the reasons the work we do now is not all that interesting is because it's already been said once and it's been said pretty well. And it's just that people didn't like the answer. So the stuff Tom Schelling wrote is fantastic. The stuff John Steinbrunner wrote is fantastic. Stuff Mort Alpern wrote. I particularly love uh, Carol Cohn, who wrote a wonderful mid-80s feminist observation set of observations about this community, because at the time it was entirely male. And it's not just the feminist piece of it, which is fantastic, but it's also her... Because she was an outsider, it was her ability to dissent from things people said and did and to just say, like, you know, people do these. She noticed that men, which, by the way, when she said this, I was like, no, this doesn't happen. And then I realized it's true. Uh, We always (laughs) touch the bombs. We pat the bombs. Really? Yeah. And she's like, why? Like, why are you doing this? Like, yeah. Oh, you take me up (laughs) to a missile on display. I'll go up and pat it. And like, I can show you pictures of, of presidents and world leaders patting missiles and she's like, you know, that's a guy thing, right? And I was like, what do you mean? It's just like, you touch that. Like, yeah. So that kind of stuff is all really great. Today, the people, so the people I think doing the best work, it's not so much deterrence theory as it is really just getting factual data about the world. Uh, so, you know, individuals doing open source work on like what our country's building. So we do that. Uh, Federation of American Scientists does that. And then I think some people doing historical work to really try to understand how we got here, which, you know, was classified. So people like Alex Wellerstein or or the team at the National Security Archive, I think that kind of foundational work is, is really, really valuable, both to give us data about the world we're in at the moment, but then also help us start to build theories of change, right? Like what what would make the world safer and like what is actually achievable? So I don't know. That's kind of where my head is at the moment. Okay. Pushing on 
In prepping for this episode, I, I asked for yeah questions from the audience for you, and uh, we got a lot of very good ones. I, to be honest, uh, I felt a little bit shown up by the audience on on this episode. I don't, I'm not, not sure what I can remember last, thinking, wow, these are, these questions are better than the ones that I'm coming up with. Uh, so yeah, do you mind if we just do a grab bag of things that, that people sent in? That would be awesome. All right, yeah. Okay, one question was, are there any efforts to decrease nuclear risk that are likely to have the opposite effect? I, I suppose that they might be thinking of things that plausibly the EA community could could end up funding by accident. Yeah, I mean, I think there probably are. Um, it's it's difficult to just randomly throw stones because I, I kind of don't know what people are likely to em- embrace. Um, so one thing I would say is that, you know, a bet my community made that I think was misguided was to emphasize disarmament as a frame. Yeah. And it's interesting when that bet was made, it was made very consciously initially by George Schultz, Bill Perry, Sam Nunn, and Henry Kissinger. Um, Are those the, some of the folks behind the nuclear threat initiative? Yes. And I love Senator Nunn, and 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 Bill Perry is one of the finest people I've ever met. And so I, you know, I disagree. I, I don't, I don't, you know, begrudge them this. They were very clear that the decision to embrace rhetoric about disarmament, which none of them had been particularly vocal supporters of previously, they felt like it was a, a way to mobilize resources, that we'd have a compelling vision that would get people to take the steps that we need to. So Senator Nunn would say, you know, it's like a mountain. You maybe can't see the top of the mountain, um, but you know if you're going up or down, right? So it was really, it was a pragmatic bet that they made. And what I think happened was it it was the wrong bet, right? It didn't really inspire people. It raised expectations that we were unable to meet which I think in part explains why the, the TPNW exists, the Treaty Prohibiting Nuclear Weapons, because it it raised expectations about disarmament, which then didn't come through. And so you get this kind of adversarial treaty that tries to hold the nuclear weapons state's feet to the fire, which I, I get. But I think it also results in funders feeling like they followed that eliminationist rhetoric with a lot of money and then didn't get a lot of return. Yeah. And so, so it's one of those things where it's, like, I believe in disarmament because I don't want to do this for a thousand years. It's just the narrow bet of, is this the frame we should have used? You know, I, I you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think it was. It's a, it's a, I was actually involved. I was working at the time with the um, Open Society Institute. And this was before Barack Obama gave the speech in Prague, where he said he was going to seek the peace and security of a world without nuclear weapons. And we focus grouped and polled people about that particular frame. How do you feel about nuclear disarmament? It was a really interesting thing we learned. If you ask people, do you support nuclear disarmament? It's like motherhood and apple pie. Everybody's for it. Republicans, Democrats, it's very popular. The minute Barack Obama, a living partisan figure, says he's for it, the numbers among Democrats go up and the number among Republicans go down. The minute Mitch McConnell says he's against it, the numbers for Democrats go up and the numbers for Republicans go down and independents don't really exist, right? They just go home to their partisan camps that they refuse to admit that they're part of. I see. So what we learned from that was that people's feelings about nuclear weapons are less important than their partisan affiliations. And once you make something a partisan issue, that dominates. So we did this study. We gave the study to the Obama administration. We said, please don't give the speech, right? They, you know, patted us on our heads and thanked us for our interest in national security and sent us on our way, gave the speech. And then a few years later, Richard Lugar, the senator from Indiana who helped get the New START treaty through, a Republican, was giving a, a talk at our board meeting. And without knowing anything about the study, proceeded to make all the same arguments. 
saying that the hardest part for him in getting the New START treaty through the Senate was that Obama had embraced the idea of disarmament. And by making it a partisan issue identified with the president, Republicans that he thought he might be able to get to support the treaty were unwilling to support Obama's treaty. Right, right. right. So when you when you say, you know, bad ideas, it's not that I think disarmament's a bad idea, but that's clearly a bet that we made as a community that didn't pan out the way we wanted to. And I think it left us in a much more dangerous place because we have kind of failed to do all the important things that we should have done. And now we're in a situation where we're looking at running simultaneous arms races with the Russians and the Chinese. Yeah. So there's there's quite uh, quite a lot of groups that are on board to, to a greater or lesser degree with the idea that we should be aiming for a nuclear weapon-free world. I guess that, that could potentially backfire. Even if it was accomplished, it could potentially backfire because then one country could arm themselves very quickly and engage in a first strike. I don't know whether that's very likely, but it, but it, it could be more likely than the risk of an accidental nuclear war is now. So that so that's one kind of perverse impact. And, and I suppose also the fact that it does just seem like a heavy lift to get to zero makes me more inclined to think that, well, our aspiration should be, you know, currently New Star allows was it 750 uh, warheads to be on, on alert at any point in time for, for, for the US and F- Russia. 1550. Oh, 1550. Okay. Where did I get which, which is from? actually 1700. Maybe that's because... for each country. Okay. No, no, it's 1550 for each country. Oh, okay. With, cool. uh, which in real life is like more like 1700 because each bomber counts as one, no matter how many nuclear weapons ah. it carries. Welcome okay. to the gatekeeping. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Very helpful. So why don't we why don't we try to reduce that number to uh, and you know get it to you know at three hundred it would still be a pretty severe threat of retaliation probably sufficient to stop anyone from engaging in a first strike so why don't we get it down to three hundred uh, and then of course we can think about getting it below that as well and you know, as I understand it we don't have any treaty with China with regards to uh, nuclear weapons control uh, some, some agreement not to have too many uh, so maybe we could get any agreement with China that would be a, that would be a great step forward so so that's kind of my amateur take on this uh, am I am I thinking in the right direction? That's basically that's basically where I am. I mean, I, I look at our goal is to prevent a nuclear war. Yeah. Disarmament is a way to do that over a very long time scale. Um, I'm actually more positive about disarmament in a case where one country builds a nuclear weapon because I actually think when you get to disarmament, what happens is you realize that these are just weapons and a country being able to destroy one city doesn't necessarily give them the ability to win a war, right? Yeah. So, but that's a, that's all very long-term stuff. Like that's about our attitudinal change towards nuclear weapons. That's, you know, that's like a couple hundred year project. In the near term, the goal is for deterrence to function stably so we don't kill each other. And part and parcel of that is reducing the number of the weapons um, so that that if deterrence does fail. Well, one thing is it'd be great if we had fewer nuclear weapons than were necessary to trigger... uh, a nuclear winter that would be a that would be one yardstick but also i actually do think that any nuclear use uh, i'm not one of these people who believes that once a nuclear weapons get, gets used we'll learn our lesson because we've done that twice now and we didn't learn the lesson right i'm not a big believer in teleology I, what lessons we learn are the lessons we choose to learn so i worry that even a small nuclear use sets us up to a scenario where it's very dynamic and then our risk profile changes in a really negative way right uh, right so i i'm i'm all about reducing the risk of use for the us russia and the us china relationship arms control is typically the way to start for two reasons one is reducing numbers has this benefit of just making things less destructive 
But if we go back to my fundamental interest in decision-making, what we're really trying to do is build a constituency in the United States and in China and in Russia for that big idea we talked about, that you have to cooperate even with your adversaries. And the way you do that is by negotiating and creating agreements in which you pursue mutual interests. So reducing numbers is not just about reducing the aggregate number. It's about reducing the most destabilizing system. But more deeply, it's about building a system that enshrines that shared interest. And I honestly, it's what I think happened with the Iran nuclear deal. And it's one of the reasons I'm so alarmed at its collapse is we created this community in Iran that actually supported in a very tentative way, a different relationship with the United States, and then we destroyed that. You know? And if, you, if you're if you an Iranian policymaker and you stuck your neck out for the Iran nuclear deal, like, would you do that twice? I wouldn't. Yeah. Um, and I, I know that's very true in China, by the way. In my dissertation, I interviewed a lot of Chinese who were involved in uh, arms control negotiations in the 90s, and they feel like they had the rug pulled out from under them. What happened there? Well, so in the 1990s, the United States and other countries negotiated a ban on nuclear testing. And people thought the Chinese would never agree to this. Uh, The Chinese reorganized internally, bureaucratically, had huge bureaucratic internal fights, and the people who supported the ban on nuclear testing won. Okay. And China signed the treaty, the U.S. signed the treaty, the U.S. refuses to ratify the treaty, Uh. which then destroyed that coalition in China. And to me, that's a very common story. By the way, there's an analogy in the U.S. In the 1990s, the Clinton administration did a nuclear posture review, and the guy who ran it was named Ash Carter. And Ash Carter wanted to get rid of land-based ICBMs, and he got destroyed, just bureaucratically annihilated. Ash later becomes the U.S. Secretary of Defense. But when he is up to be Secretary of Defense, he had learned his lesson. He was a full-throated supporter of a triad, including replacing the ICBM. Now, he will tell you his views evolved. Okay. Okay. I think he learned his lesson, right? In the same way that the Chinese learned their lesson, which is you have to be careful when you stick your neck out for diplomacy, because if the other side screws you, then inside the government, you look weak and naive, and you don't get that promotion you want. So that's, that's why I support arms control, right? It's building those communities organized around an idea of shared interest. Yeah, so, someone in the uh, audience asked why the US and uh, Russia invested so much in making lots of land-based nuclear missiles because couldn't we just put them on submarines and wouldn't that be much better? I guess I feel like you've, you've probably already said, said what you have to say about that one. Oh, that, unless, the, unless the answer is different in Russia, maybe? No, the answer is totally different in Russia because in Russia, oh, okay. they had a much weaker navy. Mm. Uh, and so they are much more heavily reliant on land-based missiles, which is why they have invested in mobile missiles. The amount of money they give the navy is less. And so the submarines that they built were... They lagged behind ours. They were not as good technically. I mean, they're pretty good now because they've been at it a long time and now they have a force. But they have always placed much more emphasis on land-based forces precisely because their navy is much weaker than ours. And I guess that makes them more skittish because the land-based missiles are more vulnerable. That's right. And you also develop operational concepts that justify the forces you have. So we look at putting multiple warheads on land-based missiles as destabilizing, you have to go first, right? Because when it's in the silo, it's one target and very vulnerable. Once it's out, it's 10 10 warheads, But that's because we have this, like, balanced system. The Russians have to justify their force and say, they say, oh, no, 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 having multiple warheads is stabilizing because if even one gets through, then, you know, that's 10 warheads. And so you create an entire intellectual life around the force you have 
which has its own notions of stability and signaling and escalation control. And, you know, the thing that from an arms control perspective we have to be worried about is we have to make sure that their ideas about stability and our ideas about stability add up to stability rather yeah. than, you know, it's like waves, right? Do the waves yeah, make a really you... big wave together or do they cancel <laughs> do out? Do they cancel out? Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, another question. In the context of massive nuclear attacks, why isn't the danger of nuclear winter widely seen as making nuclear retaliation redundant, uh, as Ellsberg suggested on his episode on the 80,000 Hours podcast? Because people don't believe in it. Uh, okay. You know, I, I was looking at... Yes, I think so. I mean... You know, I was looking at one article that was critical of nuclear winter. And then the first thing I noticed, the first person it cites is like Fred Singer, who's also a climate denialist. Um, And, you know, it I definitely think that in any issue like this, there's a certain amount of ideological motivation, which I think naturally happens. I mean, if you're a scientist working on an end of the world problem and you think somebody's about to end the world, you don't equivocate. You suddenly have a partisan view. I, you know, like I don't want to die. But then there's a natural reaction, right? So you also then get people who say, no, the climate's not changing, or no, it's not people. And I, there were a lot of people who said, no, there's no chance of nuclear winter. I, I do think there are real debates to be had about the models themselves, because they're, the inputs are really unclear. The mechanisms are are, are are difficult to understand. But those debates are kind of different than the kind of ideological-driven no, it's not happening. You're just a hippie objections that I see thrown at at nuclear winter. So I, I think it's pretty plausible. And you think those objections are not? Okay, you think it's pretty plausible, I suppose, not not known for sure how bad it will be, but uh, but credible. I mean, you know, you're going to get fires. Um, yeah. Is, is the 1,700 warheads on each side sufficient? Uh, I mean, probably. It, it seems like... Okay, probably, yeah. I mean, I the see. issue is how much burns. Um, you know, the... Are we going to trigger forest fire? If we hit silos in Siberia, will we? Well, not they're not all in Siberia, but you know, in the interior of Russia, will you get big forest fires out of it? Are you yeah. hitting leadership targets in cities? Are the cities going to burn? I mean, the thing I like to point out is that Hiroshima burned, Nagasaki didn't. Right? What determines whether there's going to be a firestorm is really hard to model. And for the longest time, the U.S. didn't model fire damage at all. They just did blast damage because they could calculate it. Fire damage was just way too complex. So that's why I say you could have a real good faith intellectual discussion about how much, um, you know, how likely, things, how bad. Hmm. Um, but I think that's not the that's not the debate that's occurring. Okay. Right? Just the, like the you deb- could have a serious debate about a climate model, but that's yeah. not what you know. That's not bringing a snowball onto the Senate floor. Right. I, I suppose having that debate would require some technical knowledge about the climate models and some of the issues and the uncertainties, whereas it's just saying, you're, you're, a, you're a nuclear uh, or you're a stooge for the nuclear industry and you're a hippie is, uh, is something anyone could do. I could participate in that. that, that that's, that's true. Although a surprising number of scientists still engage in such behavior, right? Okay. Huh. Okay. Here's, here's another question. The US threatens to retaliate with nukes against anyone who nukes certain US allies. I guess they're imagining mm-hmm. here maybe Taiwan, maybe the Baltic states. Um, and they ask, yeah, how credible is this threat and why? It's the oldest problem in the book. I don't know. Uh, Charles de Gaulle put his finger on it when, you know, he asked if the US was willing to trade New York for Hamburg. Yeah. And, you know, his answer was, it's not credible at all. France is building its own nuclear weapons. The German decision was, it is credible. We don't need our own nuclear weapons. Also, maybe everybody hates us after the war, so we you know, <laughs> so won't build that's, them. Let's just be quiet, yeah. Yeah. Um, but 
One thing that's really interesting to me is our language about this is actually a little bit misleading because we talk about a nuclear umbrella all the time. Uh, Not really a thing that exists. We have security commitments that we make to countries, right? An armed attack on NATO is an armed attack on the U.S. if it's in the Euro-Atlantic area, uh, an attack on Japan. But we don't actually have a commitment to use nuclear weapons on their behalf. So we, we have these two things. We have a security commitment to them. And we have nuclear weapons. And, you know, the Russians can put two and two together. But a lot of what we do is try to make that commitment credible. So in Europe, the thing they settled on was dual capable aircraft. We have German pilots, Belgian pilots, Italian pilots, Dutch pilots at air bases with U.S. nuclear weapons. And we claim that in a war, we're going to put a U.S. nuclear weapon on a Belgian plane and they're going to go fly it off and drop it on the Russians. Okay, Is that right? Maybe that makes it credible. It doesn't seem very credible to me. Why, why is that? Because that particular weapon system is not one that the U.S. has any interest in using. I have had senior U.S. officials say we would never drop a B-61 off the wing of a plane. It exists only as a symbol of our commitment. Okay. We don't do that in South Korea or Japan. In South Korea and Japan, we just say, well, we, we consult with you, right? We have this dialogue that we do to show you how committed we are. What I end up saying is our commitment to their security can't be separated from the nuclear uh, piece of it. You either believe we're going to defend them or you don't. And that's based on a whole bunch of broad factors, like the political relationship, our interest at stake. And then if you think we're going to come to their defense, you kind of have to assume we might use nuclear weapons because we have them. But the problem is, if you think we might not, then I don't think all the DCA in the world will change your mind. No. So I and I don't say that to be derisive about the decisions people have made. It's a hard problem. It what's is what's DCA? Oh, dual capable aircraft. Oh, dual, dual capable. So aircraft, aircraft sharing, that can carry both nuclear thing. weapons and conventional weapons. Exactly. Sorry. See right there. I did the gatekeeping <laughs> thing myself. <laughs> um, is the DCA thing set up such that the Belgian pilots can just grab the nukes and launch them? Uh, no, no. We have to without put them US, on. We no. We have to put them on. And uh, why? Why can't they pick them up? Uh, because is, the, is some security system on them. Yeah, the fear is that in the Cold War, they would have grabbed them and gone and done something bad. And by the way, you know, the U.S. has a bunch of these things sitting in Turkey right now. Incirlik Air Base, which was central in the coup against uh, the failed coup against Erdogan. You know, so that that's like a really dicey situation. Right, right, right. Uh, So, yeah, the U.S. wants to retain what's called positive control. Someone in the audience asked, it would be great if you could ask Jeffrey uh, what types of nuclear weapons are most likely to be used. Oh, I think think that the traditionally I would have said the big strategic weapons that the idea of tactical nuclear weapons was kind of talk ourselves into the fact that we might use them but if we were going to use them we'd go big I kind of no longer feel that way Um, we are seeing because the Russians and the Chinese are investing really heavily in medium and intermediate range missiles that can do both nuclear and conventional missions and that introduces a certain amount of ambiguity into a conflict that worries me. So the Russians are hitting Ukraine with these Iskander missiles, which are nuclear capable. And so you could imagine a situation in which there were more nuclear threats or more fears of nuclear use, in which the U.S. got maybe involved and was targeting those missiles. And now you're targeting nuclear forces and maybe maybe they move the nuclear warheads around and then you they're doing it because they're afraid that you're going to target them, but you think they're doing it because they're going to launch them. It just, 
complicates things in a way that I find really alarming. So I'm, I, I've kind of reversed that view and started to think that all the little stuff is just starting to get integrated with our conventional operations in ways that I don't think we've really thought through very carefully. Mm. What role do moral arguments play when strategic planners uh, make policy? Do they squarely face the implications of things like counter-value targeting, that is, uh, killing, killing many millions of civilians, or do they tend to avoid thinking about the topic? They tend to avoid thinking about the topic. There is a really strong masculine urge not to appear weak and sentimental. And so I always find it really hard. I, I used to go back to Hiroshima every year because I'm on the governor of Hiroshima's roundtable on nuclear disarmament. And going from Hiroshima to D.C. is often uh, can be very difficult because it's hard for me to go back into the kind of abstract language and denial of the consequences that's socially required in those conversations. So, you know, you see examples of that, like the um, civilians who would be killed in a counterforce strike used to be called bonus. Okay. So this is a previous, uh, I guess this is a predecessor to collateral damage? Yeah. In terms of, yeah, in euphemistic language. Huh. I mean, we still use collateral damage, but uh, bonus is now frowned upon uh, for okay. reasons that are probably obvious. Probably obvious, yeah. So, no, I don't think that policymakers really squarely face the moral implications. To the extent they do, they come through as legal. Okay, they'll That's say it, this would be a war crime, so it wouldn't be permitted uh, to, to happen. Okay. I mean, I guess they might say we have to be willing to set this stuff aside in order to make it credible that we would retaliate. So, so if we seem sufficiently soft-hearted that it would never be believable that we'd be willing to use the weapons, then, in fact, that makes war more likely. Yes, I, I think that's, yeah. that is the canonical argument. I mean, the rejoinder to it is it's very difficult to base a credible, act, a credible threat on an incredible action. And so, you know, if you're artificially excluding some considerations, you know, is, it, is that still something that is likely to be credible? And, and then honestly, are you still making a good decision? But yeah, I think people... One, there's an interesting um, perspective shift that happens here. And I, I, I just did it myself. And so I should be explicit about it. When we are talking about what will deter our enemy, we, of course, do not know. And the models that have been created are not terribly impressive. We guess at what Putin values. We don't really know. And so what, in my experience, officials usually do is they substitute themselves. And so we are actually talking not about what it will take to deter Putin. It's what we, we are talking about what will give us the courage to stand up to him. It's all about our own courage more than it is an actual calculation of what the adversary will do because it's an interior discussion. And so I think a lot of the language that we use about nuclear weapons is the equivalent of having a stiff drink. Okay. Right? It's about making yourself courageous enough to say you would do that thing and to try to express that credibly. I suppose you like thinking about decision-making processes more concretely. You know, imagining a situation where the president is being pressured to some extent through, a, through circumstance or because of who's advising them to use nuclear weapons, to what degree do you think that they might hold back because they just find the moral consequences so unpalatable, so disgusting that they, in the moment they would almost consider that they would rather just die uh, and not retaliate? I think that some presidents would feel that way. Uh, I think some presidents have a very strong moral streak. 
and would in the moment do something that they deny they would do. And we want them to deny it, I think. Right. Yeah. You know, you know, on, on the other hand, I, Donald Trump, I don't know. Yeah. You know, and I, and I don't say that simply like implying that I know he would, I really don't know what he would do. You know, I, I, I think that there's a certain amount of him that is bluster and that he might hold back, but I think there's a certain amount of him that is callous and selfish and he might not. And so I just think it, it's, it's important to remember that the individual people probably matter, that people make different decisions. Yeah. To what extent do you think will be affected by, you know, what side of the bed they got up in the morning? I suppose it's an alarming thing to imagine that just, you know, the mood that they happen to be in in the moment uh, could be definitive. Yeah, there are plenty of examples where decision makers at a, at a lower level, I guess I shouldn't call them the decision makers, staff, have to decide, do you wake the president up? Right. Do you want the person to wake up and make a decision now when they're cranky or do you want them to get a good night's sleep because they got a long day ahead? So North Korea shot down a U.S. reconnaissance aircraft in 1969, killed everyone on board, and they decided not to wake Nixon up. They thought, you know, he needs to sleep and it's going to be a long day tomorrow. It can wait a few hours. And and, and it can wait. And they, they were sincere. You know, Nixon was someone who famously would get drunk and, and have tantrums and they often organized their decision-making structure around his human frailty. So, I, I, you know, I think it matters. Yeah, yeah. To what degree does the ability to use salami tactics make the idea of deterrence? I suppose for those who don't know, salami tactics is, is this idea that your adversary will, you know, they'll, they'll go one mile, pa- one kilometer past your border and stop. And then you'll think, well, do I really want to destroy the world now? Uh, do I want to press the button now? And you think, no. And then they go another kilometer and then they stop. And you're like, do I want to destroy the world now? And uh, the question is like, at what point does, does that end? To what degree does that make nuclear weapons like far less useful for deterrence than, uh, than you might think on paper? Uh, so I think that that's, First of all, you should play that clip from either. Oh. It's, it, that actually may be the yes prime minister era, right? Okay, it's so good. You know, it is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, um, I love the salami tactics argument because I I do think it is very hard to imagine a rational scenario in which one uses nuclear weapons, and I think deterrence is probably less effective than people believe. And the examples I always give are Argentina invaded the Falklands, right? They concluded Britain would. I was going to ask the- about that. Yeah. What, what I mean, aren't they declaring war on NATO? <laughs> uh, not in the Euro Atlantic. It's not in the North Atlantic. That's why it's the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Got it. Okay. Ding. Um, but also Egypt invaded the Suez when Israel had nuclear weapons. China and Russia fought a border skirmish that the Chinese initiated. And, you know, people say, well, those don't count, right, as deterrence failures. And I'm like, yeah, that's the point. They don't count. The aggressor was able to successfully figure out that there are some things that count and other things that don't. And when you start to play that game, it's very unclear where the boundary is, where that line is. But then this brings us back to if it was a purely rational endeavor, you would salami tactic your way to no nuclear war and then nuclear deterrence just simply wouldn't work. I think it is that irreducible risk that animates the system. And I, we're talking a lot about Tom Schelling today. You know, he, one great thing he said was, we think of the nuclear brink as a precipice, and that is wrong because you know where the edge of the precipice is. It is a curved slope, and you are inching your way out. 
And the further you inch out, the less sure you are about when or where you're going to slip. And that's my answer to salami tactics. I think at a purely rational level, they're real. And it shows why deterrence is not all it's cracked up to be. But the answer, which is, you know, good and bad, is there is still an irreducible risk that there must be some point at which, because the president got up on the wrong side of the bed, because the information is wrong, you know, that things get out of control. Well, I actually think, it feels to me like the the main thing that saves us from all of this is that, you know, so you can imagine Russia, yeah, they consider invading one kilometer past the border in the Baltic states and then just stopping and seeing, are you going to respond? And and obviously the rational answer is no, you're not going to destroy the world now. But there's a one in a thousand chance that you might. There's some tiny chance. And even at a one in a thousand chance, the value of crossing the border one kilometer is not worth it, is not worth a one in a thousand chance of your society being destroyed. And it's that asymmetry between the magnitude of the gains that one can get by violating these rules relative to the enormous downside, where the downside is just many, 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 many multiples larger. That means that it's not in any, it's, it's very rarely in any country's interests to take that risk. You know, I think that that's a, that is probably one of those really crucial things to say about deterrence. The, and the, the way that I express that idea is nuclear weapons simplify a lot of calculations. You know, there are a lot of complex games you could play where you're imagining, but because there is that irreducible risk of everything going wrong with this enormous cost, it simplifies things for policymakers in, in a lot of cases. The other issue that I, I think we should be aware of is it's easy to say you drive one kilometer in, but we have to keep in mind that the person getting driven in doesn't know you've only driven in one kilometer, right? They don't know that you've stopped. They know that you've crossed the border, and then they get a report that says they've crossed the border, and maybe I four see. hours later they get a report that says they, they haven't got to the next town. And you're like, well, maybe send out a reconnaissance unit and figure out, like, what, like where are they? Or you fly a plane, and, you know, maybe the plane sees you, but maybe the plane doesn't see you. Maybe they see you, and they're like, oh, we can bomb them because they, they've broken down. You know, you just don't really know. Uh, and so, again, because you don't have that perfect information, you do still have that one in a thousand chance. Like, yeah, totally. you know, it's it's the it's the Lin Biao pathology. They don't know what you didn't do. They they only see what you did. Yeah. What were some of your main points of disagreement with Thomas Schelling? Oh, um, I this is I there's one that I, I particularly cherish. So when Tom thought about the risk of nuclear war, the thing he always compared it to, at least in our conversations, and he did it once in a published paper, is when he's driving, he's confident a pedestrian isn't going to step out in front of him. And that's deterrence. And he's very comfortable with deterrence. And I was like, Tom, people get hit by cars all the time. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And, and I think that goes to that fundamental difference. He was confident that he was never going to hit a pedestrian and that a significant portion of that was, dry, uh, was the deterrence of, of driving. And, you know, a small part of that was, you know, him thinking he was a pretty good driver. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll never forget. I, ha- I, I threw a dinner and Mort Halperin was there. And Tom and Mort had had a couple of glasses of wine, I, you know, maybe more than a couple. And Tom, who at the point is it like in his late 80s, says to Mort, I'll drive you home. And I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> no. 
Like, this is not how I want to win the argument about pedestrian fatalities. Interesting. So, but he just, he was just at some level very confident that people were deeply sensible and rational. And I just, I don't share that sense. I actually looked up statistically you know, what are the percentage of serious accidents involving pedestrians in cars? I wanted to find for Massachusetts in the early 80s uh, when he wrote this, just to get a sense of like, what was his reference risk? And it, it turns out in, you know, you have to look at licensed drivers from a driver's perspective, like about one in a thousand drivers every year would hit a pedestrian. Yeah. So not not that low a number. So, you know, like a one in a thousand risk of a nuclear war. Like, I, Tom, that seems high to me. Yeah. Yeah. I guess... Yeah, it seems to me like the game theory on something as serious as this needs to build in. So you say people are rational, people choose the sensible option, but then one in every thousand times they just happen to choose the other option for unfathomable reasons that are outside the model. And you want to have a strategy that is robust to that. (laughs) Um, I guess in the Prisoner's Dilemma case, you deal with that by potentially having forgiveness. So you have... I guess we'll go into the slot, but you can have this kind of grim trigger where if someone defects on you, then you continue defecting forever. But that's a bad idea because uh, you can get stuck in a loop of defecting indefinitely. You need to have some forgiveness process whereby people can redeem themselves and get back to cooperation. And basically, it seems like we need, we need strategies that are robust to people doing something randomly stupid. I think that is, that is a really important point. And the way that I think Tom dealt with that on a personal level was by being willing to change his mind, by being willing to adjust. You know, So I think for him, it was... It was almost a, I don't know what you'd call it, a, a personal choice, just a, a, a way he looked at the world. Stylistic. Or, yeah. yeah. And and you could persuade him that sometimes his stylistic choices were really particular. There was a, he has a famous example about, you know, if you have to meet a friend in New York, but you don't know when or where, where would you meet? And I was always unimpressed by this example because he's like, of course, it's Grand Central Station at noon. And I'm like, you know, Tom, that's like a man who used to take the train from, you know, uh, Harvard or New Haven down to New York City, like, you know, once a month or something. Like, I'm from Illinois. I, you know. I didn't even know. I'd uh, probably be at a Grand Central Station. Yeah. Yeah. Empire State Building, right? Like Times Square. And he he admitted, but he admitted in his book, like, you know, this is probably pretty uh, culturally specific to, to myself and my group of friends. I'm like, the answer is yes. The problem is. I am trying to deter someone with whom I have an adversarial relationship, largely probably because I don't share a lot of the same cultural touch points. Yeah. Why did it take decades after the first nuclear weapons for countries to sign nuclear non-proliferation and arms control agreements? That's easy because nuclear weapons were good. I mean, we we conceived of them as weapons, right? It was an, a very efficient way to conduct strategic bombing. We thought they were good when we had them. They were good when our allies had them. And it was only bad when the bad guys had them. And I think the intellectual change that caused us to stop thinking of them as just another weapon that happens to be really big was when China built them. Huh. Uh, Which was a kind of, you know, we could sort of adjust ourselves to the fact that the Russians might have joined us. And now we were in this deterrent situation, but, you know, they kind of look like us and they're, you know, they're rational. It, Chinese, I just, it was just a lot harder for us, I think, emotionally uh, to, to wrap up. Because the U.S. didn't understand around. China? 
Yeah, you know, Mao seems crazy. I mean, you know, okay, look, yeah. I'm going to be honest. American's pretty racist, especially 1964. Uh, and I, I just think that that's just the China's poor. It's strange to us. We don't have any relationship with it. You know, Mao is not. I mean, Mao seems nuts. Mao kind of is nuts. You know, it's a tumultuous place. So you really see that there's a kind of shift. Um, there's something called the Gilpatrick Commission, which is, by the way, Roswell Gilpatrick had his love letters with Jackie Kennedy stolen out of his safe. Uh, DC, small place. Okay. Uh, he, after the Chinese nuclear detonation, he has to come, he's, he's put on this commission because this is what presidents always do. Something bad happens, you have a commission, which means you make the bad story go away because you say, well, I'm waiting for the commission. That's really where we get a lot of our modern arms control and nonproliferation agenda it comes from the Gilpatrick Commission, at least U.S. support for it. And the, I would argue that the political impetus that makes that seem like a palatable idea is Chinese acquisition of nuclear weapons. Because like once they can do it, anybody can do it. And that's really scary. How good do you think current systems are at detecting secret nuclear facilities? Ooh, that is a really tough question to answer. It is the thing I think about the most. In the past, we were pretty good at it because nuclear facilities were big and they had a lot of signatures. Like gaseous diffusion plant was hot. You know, a reactor has to be cooled. Centrifuge plants for enriching uranium of the kind that the Iranians built in secret are much more difficult to detect. On the other hand, the U.S. caught the Iranians like three different times building secret centrifuge plants. So three for three is a really good number. Yeah. And the big question is, you know, did we have like a 90% chance of detecting those? And so will we, you know, like, will our luck hold for numbers four and five? In which case, I think you need the Iran nuclear deal, which is why I support it. Or are we just so good? Um, But they're small and they don't have a lot of signatures. And so I think they should be pretty hard to detect. Huh. I would have thought just in the modern age with so much stuff being logged on the internet or being logged by computers that's... If you were really smart about it, you could find some indication that a country was, you know, trying to build one of these centrifuge facilities. So what typically happens is you pick up procurements. Right. How many people are buying that kind of centrifuge? Well, so you you have to buy the components, right? Because no one will sell you the centrifuge. And so you're buying, I mean, this is where the famous aluminum tubes came from in Iraq. And so there's always some ambiguity. I mean, are the tubes and the ball bearings and, you know, the vacuum systems, are they for centrifuges or are they for other things? But the example I would give is the U.S. detected in the early 2000s North Korean procurements that they correctly assumed were for a large centrifuge plant. The North Koreans began constructing that plant in the about the same time. The U.S. did not identify it as a site of interest for four or five years and did not positively ID it as a centrifuge plant, which, by the way, we're still not sure because we've never been in. But the U.S. government didn't ID it until about 2010 and the outside community, I and you know, we'd heard about rumors of this place. We didn't find it for another 10 years after that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, North Korea is pretty extreme. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It is. But the problem is when you look at the facility itself, it doesn't give itself away. Yeah. Okay. So you might see stuff going in and out and you're like, I think you're building a centrifuge plant, but like, can you prove it? Like, where is it? That gets really, really hard. If you had $10 million to give in grants related to nuclear security, who might you disperse the money to asking for a friend? (laughs) (laughs) Um, they didn't add that so i would i'll add that i would mostly spend it on data and and a little bit on you know decision making and theories of change okay what sort of data 
So the open source work like we do, although there are other people who do it, so right, like I'm not trying to, you know, take the $10 million, but open source work that tracks nuclear programs. I mean, the example I like to use is um, we had a big debate. We're having a big debate about the nature of our relationship with China and the possibility of an arms race. We are the first people who publicly discovered uh, the existence of several hundred missile silos being constructed out in the Chinese desert. And then two other groups then subsequently found other fields. Being wrong about how many nuclear weapons and what kind the Chinese are building has huge consequences for understanding where they are in their thinking about an arms race, right? You can't plausibly imagine an arms control regime unless you have some idea of what they have and some guess about why they're building it. So that research, I think, is very valuable. And I think, as I I mentioned this earlier, archival research. So like the National Security Archive, which gets stuff declassified and helps us reconstruct how we got from the past to the present. I find that stuff really, really valuable because like we're still arguing about like, what is the U.S. target? You know, and the the way you're going to get that data is by getting things declassified and by collecting oral histories and going through that data in a scholarly, careful way. Yeah. Okay, let's take those one by one. So on the data collection side, I guess the argument that this helps is that, or I guess there's one argument that I could make, is that in as much as there's massive uncertainty about what other countries, about, you know, in this case, say what China and Russia are doing with their nuclear arsenals, in as much as it's extremely opaque to the decision makers in the US, they're inclined to think the worst and to think China is arming up. They're probably doing a whole bunch of stuff we can't see and we're worried about that. And so even if that's not happening, hypothetically, then the U.S. will tend to tend to start like building up in anticipation of that possibility, which then means that China kind of has to do the same thing as well. Yeah. So if you really can't tell, so, so if neither side can really tell what the other side is doing, then that is very conducive towards an accidental arms race that neither side might like. Whereas if there were very strong transparency, then both sides could regularly confirm that the other side is not starting an arms race and, and things could remain in that state for a significant period of time. And I would say there's a civil society piece, which is we can't just leave it to the intelligence community, because as we saw in the invasion of Iraq, sometimes the intelligence community gets things wrong. And, you know, I'm a believer in civil society. And I think one of the reasons that the Iraq war was able to happen is that civil society wasn't able to participate in a meaningful way in the question of whether Saddam Hussein might actually build a nuclear weapon. So I, I think it's a it's a conversation we have to have publicly as well as privately. But I think that model... Which means you need declassified information. Right. Well, or unclassified information unclassified. in our case. Sorry, you know, I meant to say unclassified. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Did yeah. I gatekeep again? Jeez. <laughs> no, no, no. That, that, that right. was just me being an idiot. Uh, Even I know that's wrong. <laughs> uh, but the point you raise is, is incredibly important because we might have false beliefs about what the Chinese are doing and why they're doing it. And that might cause an arms race in peacetime. And in a crisis, it might cause us to misinterpret what they're doing. And so understanding their nuclear program is really, really, is really important. Like one example of this is China has these, China has this no first use policy, right? They say they would not be the first to use nuclear weapons. Nobody in the United States believes this. Oh, really? Hmm. Um, So there's just a fun and fundamental kind of disconnect. And the Bush and Obama administrations really believe that the way to prevent China from building up was to maintain a nuclear force that was four or five times bigger than the Chinese. They said that would dissuade, that was the term of art they used, dissuade the Chinese from undertaking a buildup. Why would that dissuade them? As somebody who spent a lot of time talking to Chinese nuclear weapons guys, I was like, that is not dissuasion, that is incitement. 
Right. It seems like it's ex- at least extremely ambiguous what effect that would have. Yes. You know, the <laughs> yeah. and, and in particular, the Chinese were saying the fact that you have a much bigger arsenal and you're building missile defenses, we're going to have to increase the size of our force. Right. And so there was a huge debate, which my side lost. So we did it. So we have big missile defenses, no limitations. And we, you know, kept the size of our arsenal four or five times bigger than the Chinese. And then now we got silos in the desert. And so regardless of me just saying that, you know, I think I'm right. It's we had a consequential debate about what was motivating the Chinese. We placed a bet and like that bet did not pay off. You know, we did not dissuade the Chinese from undertaking a buildup. They are now in the midst of a buildup. I'm guessing there hasn't been a lot of accountability for that mistake. <laughs> I, I mean, I did anybody suffer any consequences for Iraq? Yeah. Vietnam? Um, right. I, you know, consequences are not a thing we do. Okay. Turning now to the, to the other thing you were saying, which is, I didn't expect this one. So you're saying archival research. So we'll send in people to read all these uh, recently declassified documents in order to understand better the history I guess some people might think that that, while fascinating, is isn't really at the cutting edge. Or, you know, isn't really at the at the pointy end of changing policy of affecting the risk of nuclear war anytime soon. Do you want to make the case that actually that that work really does matter? Yeah, because the people who say that are the people who then turn around and repeat the mistake that was made ten years ago that they don't even know happened. And I don't think I really appreciated this till I got old. But like, I meet all these bright young things who roll up. And they are like, I have this brilliant idea. And I'm like, I have heard this brilliant idea before. It is, in fact, a brilliant idea. Let me tell you why this brilliant idea didn't work. And I'm not at all saying, like, we shouldn't try again. But, like, we can learn, right? We can maybe figure out why it didn't work then. Maybe it would work now. Maybe the conditions are different. You know, I just, particularly as someone who is focused on decision-making pathologies, I got to tell you, when I read about the Truman administration, it does not feel black and white to me. You know, it's not an old movie. It's not a period piece. They do the same things we do. They are the same human beings. And so we have this big data set, but we just decide like, well, but those are black and white movies, so they're not part of our data set. So we throw the data away. And and so we don't necessarily understand how we got where we are. And we don't really have a ton of insight into how things are, are are playing out. And by the way, I think that's true of the protagonists. You know, like, maybe somebody like Joe Biden, because he's really old, remembers the good old days. But like, presidents make the same mistakes over and over and over again. It's because they're like, well, this is now and I'm new and I am different. And then they proceed to do like exactly the same thing over and over and over again. So I, I, I believe in learn, like, I don't think people learn all that effectively, but I think we can if we make a choice. Yeah, I suppose understanding all of the history and learning the right lessons is very challenging and it can involve a lot of work, I guess, especially given that there's many decision makers in this process who are not specialists, who are not going to actually go and do a PhD to, to, to learn all of, all of that. Right. But I imagine that I imagine it's all made significantly worse by the fact that so much of it is secret and classified and the decision is extremely opaque and people are mainly trying to hide what happened because it's embarrassing. It makes it very easy for the same thing to happen again and for people to not realize at the time that they're doing what happened 10 years ago. And then that becomes, though, then the ba- the benefit of patterns because people tend to tell the same kinds of stories. And so often I will hear someone's version of events and I will recognize the narrative. And, and that will cause me to be a little skeptical because it's a time, a shop-worn narrative I've heard before. 
but it also then guides me to look for the little inconsistencies. So I, I feel like I, I just I'm not someone who really believes there's a past. You know, I don't think the past is a fundamentally different place. I think that, you know, it is it, it makes sense to think of the past as being this parallel and related place that does largely overlap with the, the world we live in today. Hmm. A really famous episode in U.S. Uh, nuclear policy, sufficiently famous that even I know about it, is that in the late 40s and 50s, uh, as I understand it, I think the Air Force massively overestimated the number of nuclear weapons that the Soviet Union had. Conveniently for them, I suppose, because it then justified a massive spend on uh, rapid construction of lots of lots of bombers and development of ICBMs and and so on. I guess it sounds like possibly we've made a similar mistake uh, again in a way of allowing ourselves to be lulled into thinking that an arms race is taking place when maybe it's not. Actually, no, I suppose the situation with China is different. I should, I should scrub that bit, but... Uh... Well, we don't know. No, we actually don't know. I mean, one of the reasons... One of the reasons I think civil society's finding of those silo fields is so important is the U.S. government had found them and they believe that every single silo is going to have a missile, which is a huge buildup. And if they're right, that is a really significant development, but it's a specific kind of significant development. When we looked at the way the silos were arranged, they struck us as being much more like a, a, a scheme the U.S. had in the late 70s called the shell game where because silos are very vulnerable because you can't hide them, you build lots of them because they're very cheap to build and you put a smaller number of expensive missiles in them. And that's actually, statistically, that is the best way to ensure their survivability. It sounds crazy, but you can build so many more silos for the cost of one more missile that you get more survivability from one missile and a bunch of silos than from two missiles and two silos. Just how the math works. And so we said, you know, like, you don't actually know that those are full and that's a very different kind of posture. And my understanding is that had not that had not been given a serious hearing in the U.S. government at all, even though it strikes us as an important and consequential possibility. And when we really pushed uh, DOD on it, I mean, to their credit, right, this is to their credit, they were like, you're right, we don't know. We're going to assume they're all going to be filled because that's our job. But you're <laughs> right, we can't prove it. Well, it matters, right? Yeah. Like, I get that we can't prove it right now and that it's a thing that requires study. But whether they plan to build several hundred or like 50 hidden in several hundred has an enormous impact for how we think about stability and balance and deterrence. And what their int intentions are. Yeah, you mentioned yeah. earlier that no one believed or maybe no one believes China's no first use policy. Uh, do, do you believe it? I do stipulating that I think I understand what it is. Okay. Which is to say, it's not a promise they made to us. A, a lot of people are like, ah, you know, they say they're going to be nice to us, but like, you know, they could change their mind. What it actually is, is it, it's an ideological position because when China conducted its first nuclear test, there was a movement to ban atmospheric testing. And most of the countries that supported that in the world were China's friends. And so the Chinese were in a weird spot. They needed to atmospherically test to develop the weapons. It also made their friends angry. They needed a propaganda response. And the propaganda response was to say, hey, how about this? How about we all agree not to use nuclear weapons first against one another? And there are bureaucratic reasons they supported that. The advocates for nuclear weapons in the Chinese program were scientists who wanted to do tests, but didn't necessarily want to build a lot of nuclear weapons because they wanted to you know, spend the money on R&D. And, and so it, it acquired this quality of being a thing that has been said publicly by people like Mao, and so, you know, if you're like a colonel, you can't really argue against it. 
Um, but it's not really a promise to us. It was like a statement about how they thought about nuclear weapons, which is that their their theory is the U.S. uses nuclear weapons to push them around. And it makes sense for them to say, by the way, you can't use them first. That's not a credible threat because we have them too. If China got into the business of nuclear coercion at that time, then they're kind of subject to nuclear coercion, right? So I, I feel like, yes, it is a ideological statement that Mao made that no leader really wants to revisit and that does impose some constraints on them. At the same time, it was left to the military, which over time has come up with different answers, to work out, like, what does that mean in practice? Yeah. And and so, like, I believe it, but I what I believe is 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 a little bit more complicated more than just they yeah. it. Yeah. You can never ask an academic about his dissertation. That is that is death. <laughs> Four hours later, you're like, I want to go home. No, I mean, I, I think that's, it's super interesting. I, I, I maybe thought that they might have developed an ideological attachment to the idea of no first use policy from the idea that they're taking the high road, that they're the people who all along have been against aggressive use of nuclear weapons. Uh, and they look down on other countries that are more frivolous about them or use them for coercion. And maybe they would, they would get attached to, to, to their own positive self-image. Yeah. In a way they do. Although what they say is that the countries that threaten others with nuclear weapons do so because they're the ones who are truly afraid of them. Right. So it's this phrase, a frightened dog barks loudest. They think if you're out threatening countries with nuclear weapons, the reason you're doing that is because what are you really afraid of? Nuclear weapons. And so their argument, like the reason that they feel that even though the U.S. has so many more nuclear weapons, that they're not coerced is because they're not frightened. And because they're not frightened, they don't threaten people with nuclear weapons because everybody knows deterrence will hold. And I, it has a certain smug quality to it, which I, yeah. I think is not it's like not totally false. It's like, take a chill pill, guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we can all be calm together. You know, it's like, they're like, I also have a button. <laughs> La-di-da. It's like, I'm going to push the button. I'm going to push the button. Yeah. Like, I also have a button. Yeah. Okay. For our final section, let's push on and talk about maybe what you think are good ideas or good marginal changes that we could make, all things mm. considered, to U.S. or, I guess, possibly NATO, uh, kind of U.S. strategy or, or, or the arsenal. And I guess for this second, I kind of want you to imagine that you have a reasonably free hand uh, ch- changing things, that we're not, not just going to think about what's possible given all, of the, given all of the institutional constraints and all of the different interest groups and so on. Yeah, if, if, you, if you were, you know, one of the top advisors to the president and they were willing to go along with your ideas, what, what is the change that you would make to, to U.S. nuclear policy? There are three things I really want to really do, and they go from, like, little to big. Little is, I really think the president should say we would never use a nuclear weapon if a conventional weapon would work as well. And the reason I say this is, earlier I talked about how often there's this kind of disconnect between what the president really thinks and what the plans are. And a lot of what we do is try to surface those tensions to resolve them in, in positive ways. And I really think we've gotten to a point where nuclear weapons have an almost metaphysical aspect to them. They're lousy weapons. The military tends to not want to use them in conflicts. But we sort of imagine that we'll invoke them because they have this magical power to make the other side give up, which I think is crazy. Like, I think it's total non-falsifiable metaphysical mumbo jumbo. Like, okay, would it? Like, Maybe. I don't know. There's a bunch of unanswered questions. What I really think the value of the nuclear weapons is the destruction they do. And they should be treated like any other weapon. You know, I don't think Kim Jong-un cares if he gets killed with a nuclear weapon or a regular weapon. So by saying we're going to compare these to other weapons, like, yes, these are they, they have real serious political downsides. So we would only use them if they provided some weapon-like quality that was irreplaceable. 
Uh, I think it turns out, my guess is the number of targets in the world would drop to like 10. I guess you mean really hardened silos or something like that that couldn't be attacked otherwise? Uh, yeah, yeah, like hardened command structures. And and that would have force us to have a really straightforward debate about like what are these things for and what do we think they do? So that's one thing. Okay, what's number two? Number two is ratify the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. The US, China, and Russia are all modernizing our nuclear test sites. If you look at the open source information, it is busy, busy, busy at all three. All of them are preparing to resume nuclear testing in case the other ones do. And I think we're going to stumble into a renewed era of nuclear testing, which will accelerate the arms race. The best way to do that is to ratify the damn treaty that says you don't and to try to put in place some additional verification measures and confidence building measures to stop that outcome from happening. So who who has ratified that treaty and who hasn't? So it's a multinational treaty. So there are like many signatories Uh, The big issue is there are a small number of countries that must ratify it for it to enter into force. I see. And the U.S. and and China are, are, are big holdouts. There are other holdouts. So simply getting the U.S. and China in, the Russians are already in, wouldn't solve all our problems, but it would put us in a position to do maybe some stuff on the side that could stop the three of them from resuming testing, which I think is we're not going to want to go back to a world of testing, but we might. Wow. Okay. Um, What's number three? Number three is a little bit conceptual. We're back to Tom Schelling. Tom Schelling thought the greatest accomplishment that academics made, and the only good thing we ever did in arms control, was convince people that missile defenses or ABMs were destabilizing, right? People think defenses are good, and how can my defenses be bad? But the the reality is, is that if I have a shield and a sword, and you just have a sword, I'm going to hit you with my sword and then parry or block your thrust, right? Yeah. So... That view became dominant in the 1960s. It's why we got the ABM Treaty, and it was the foundation for all the arms control that came after it. The U.S. left that treaty in 2003. The Chinese and Russians have made it clear that they cannot possibly imagine limiting their offensive systems unless there's a corresponding limit on the defensive systems that they have to beat. And that makes sense, right? It's two sides of the same equation. But in America, that is political poison. And so if you give me a free hand, a magic wand... That intellectual change of accepting that, like, a world in which we have defenses and offenses is a world in which they both have the same thing, and that's a world of an unconstrained arms race. Like, that's bad. And if you want arms control to work, if you want to limit offensive numbers, you have to have some kind of corresponding limit on defenses. Yeah. Is there any way of selling that to the public or the armed forces? I I suppose maybe you could treat it as a budgetary measure that this stuff is too expensive, maybe? It's fantastically expensive. But Republicans love it. Okay. Do, do they not understand that it's counter... Do they not believe that it's counterproductive? They believe defenses are stabilizing because defenses are good. Which, by the way, is what the Soviets believed initially, too, right? Like, defenses are good. It's a very simplistic argument, but... But the argument is very obvious. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't take... <laughs> you say, but Ronald Reagan didn't get it. Ronald Reagan was like, defense is good. Wouldn't We would make nuclear weapons impotent and obsolete because I will build a leak-proof defense and then we will abolish all the nuclear weapons. Right. I mean, it sounds goofy, but remember, a majority of Republicans don't believe in climate change, evolution. Like, we all have our, and I'm sure, you know, you can pick things Democrats believe that are goofy. Like, we all have our ideological commitments, and for Republicans, it's that defenses are good. Okay. Well, those are three very interesting, I don't know, they sound like great changes. Um, Oh, actually, sorry, is is there any way that we could sell the the test ban treaty to, to the public or to politicians? Yeah, I think so. Obviously, the atmospheric test ban was 
easier because there was, you know, fission products showing up in uh, children's milk, which was bad. I see. Uh, so this really closed the last bit of banning all nuclear tests, which really included underground nuclear tests. But yeah, you know, I, I, I made a tongue-in-cheek suggestion, which is the only time I got an angry call from a, a member of Congress's office. Senator Kyle from Arizona was talking about how the U.S. needed to resume nuclear testing. So I suggested that we put the nuclear test site in Arizona and name it after him. And his office called me very angry. Uh, so, yeah, I have often suggested that if you want to get the CTBT ratified in the United States, we ought to do a survey where people go up and knock on doors and just ask people's opinion about how they feel about the possibility of greenfielding a nuclear test site down the road. <laughs> I tell them, you know, very limited shaking, no more than, you know, two, three times a year. And when you feel that rumble, that's the feeling of freedom. Yeah. <laughs> we and need to my guess is... We need to wheel out a force more powerful than the, than the armed yeah. services, more powerful than nuclear yeah. weapons. I, that's, that's how I feel. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, those three are great. So I'm tempted to ask, is there a fourth or a fifth or a sixth? I mean, I... I got, I got more, but boy, if we did okay. one of those three things in my lifetime, I'm, I'm going to be real happy. Very chuffed. Okay. Um, what approach should the U.S. adopt towards China regarding nuclear weapons, all things considered? That's a big question. So here's, here's the nub of the problem. When I got into this business, China's arsenal was small. It was focused solely on deterring U.S. nuclear coercion, and it was pretty relaxed. You know, it was kept off alert. And over the years, I have argued that we are taking that for granted and that if we don't engage with the Chinese seriously, if we don't accept some limitations on missile defenses, if we don't find a way to improve our relationship, like that cannot last forever. And now we're in the period in which it's no longer lasting and we're seeing really rapid change. And what I don't know is I don't know how much of this is just purely service driven. The second artillery is now the rocket force and they're much more powerful and they get their way. And so with getting their way is money and budgets and cool toys I don't know how much of it is Xi Jinping and his outlook. And I just don't know how much of it is just the general collapse in our relationship with China. So what I like to say is that we have to at least begin a dialogue with them about some concept of shared stability. I don't think we have the same ideas about stability. And that basically is us agreeing that we don't seek to coerce them with nuclear weapons and accepting something like Taiwan being independent and them admitting that, you know, they're not trying to catch us in terms of parity. But over the long run, I think what we have to try to figure out is, like, what is life going to look like after Xi Jinping? One thing people in Washington are really bad about, and I'm, I'm guilty of it too, is we act like Putin and Xi Jinping are forever. You know, these guys are both within five years, I think, of the life expectancy for men in their country. And, you know, they're rich and powerful, so they'll live a little longer than that. But they're not going to be with us in 20 years, right? So we need to sort of look past the immediate situation and try to imagine what it looks like if you focus over a 10 or 20 year time frame. What does it look like to build a relationship where even though we have real disagreements, we still are focused on that shared interest in not having a nuclear war? Yeah. And that's, you know, like people don't like having that conversation, but like I, it's crucial. So I as an idiot, do not understand why the US and China doesn't already have some agreement regarding nuclear weapons, because it just seems like even if both sides kind of hate one another, it's in both sides' interest to have fewer nuclear weapons on high alert, to not have to do massive amounts of research into new weapons, to counter what the other side is doing, to be in an arms race, to be testing stuff all the time. 
it seems like there should be a large space for a negotiated agreement that is in both sides' interests from a security point of view and from a money-saving point of view, and yet there isn't. Well, I mean, that was sort of the Chinese position because when this started, you know, they had like 100 nuclear weapons and they were off alert and they had a no first use pledge and they didn't have missile defenses. And the U.S., you know, had all these things, had a big alert force. And the Chinese view was like, you know, you need to accept some limits. You, and, and one of the things the Chinese wanted was for the U.S. to pledge not to use nuclear weapons first against them. Another thing is that they wanted the U.S. to say that it, you know, accepted what has come to be called mutual vulnerability, which is funny, right? MAD, the calumny, mutual assured destruction and assured vulnerability. It's the two parts of the calumny, the mutual <laughs> vulnerability that survive. It's, and the assured destruction part is gone. Yeah. Uh, they wanted the U.S. to accept that. They wanted the U.S. to ratify the CTBT. They wanted to engage. And the U.S. position was like, well, there's nothing in that for us, right? Because we would be the ones giving all these things up. And you're only promising not to do something. And we're going to just dissuade you by keeping a giant force. That's the bet we made. But what you're gaining is that they're not going to go do this thing that they're now doing. <laughs> I mean, I, I tried to make this point many <laughs> times yeah. over the course of, of, of a decade. But Lost the argument. it's very hard to argue that you should give something up in the hopes that this other country won't do something. Yeah. Well, I suppose now that they're doing it, now that they're doing it, can we now, can we have an agreement where they agree to so stop I'm doing hoping, the new? Yeah. Yeah. I'm hoping we're in that like sweet spot between it's just scary enough that we're motivated, but it's not so scary that we freak out and build 10,000 more nuclear weapons. And that's like a delicate little it's window to try to manage. Window of opportunity. Well, fortunately, the relationship is otherwise blossoming. So uh, <laughs> this, should, this should be straightforward. Um what could we potentially do regarding Russia? As I understand it, so so the New START Treaty expires 2026, is it? 2025? And and it can't just be renewed. So we've got to have some new agreement. But as a, you know, they're they're not really heading to the same dinner parties at the moment. Not not a lot of chit-chat about this. What are the least bad options here? Yeah, it is it is very difficult. Arms control, threat reduction, all that stuff is always hostage to the general geopolitical relationship. And so and that is that actually is a mystery to me. Uh, or it is very right, strange. Right, because like, you're just under- as dead in a nuclear war when you're not getting along right. as you are when you are getting along. Yes, you're so right. Like, I mean, so maybe the background relationship is terrible, but, you know, that actually doesn't change the calculation around the nuclear treaties almost at all. It should make it more salient. Right. The fact that a nuclear yeah. war is now more likely more. should make you more, yes, but, you know. Okay. It is not that way. In America, we have this idea that you only sign treaties with good guys and your friends. So it's just harder to do. So, you know, after the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, Carter pulled the SALT II treaty at a time when we needed it more. Uh, I think the, the fundamental issue with Russia, which is also the issue with China, is the Russians are modernizing their force to defeat the missile defenses the U.S. has and that they fear the U.S. will build. And until the U.S. is willing to cap those defenses the Russians are going to keep building to overwhelm them. So unless we can find a way forward on limiting, I hate even calling them defenses because they're not defenses, but limiting ABMs again, you know, you're going to have the arms race. It's just going to happen. So that that's the thing that's got to change. Reading between the lines here, so setting aside anything that we think about China and Russia as how they act in general, how they act towards their population, how good their systems are, it seems like from a purely nuclear escalation point of view, the U.S. is has been the bad guy lately. It's the group 
that is not willing to come to the table to make these agreements on reductions in arms numbers or in you know uh, uh, preventing preventing arms races, preventing uh, testing races, which I guess suppose from an impact point of view is good because I suppose well the people listening to the show have more influence over the U.S. than they would do over China. So if you can, there's more possibility of fixing U.S. policy if that is the the key broken broken piece here. Yeah, I mean you know good guy bad guy language gets pretty loaded. What I would say is we were the strongest party. And and that gave us the most ability to shape the environment. And we chose to really go all in on missile defenses and not really limit our nuclear arsenal significantly. And so that shaped the environment. So that was a choice we made. We also have a broken political system where we don't do treaties. We really, we struggle to make diplomatic agreements because the other party criticizes you for being weak and so we really find it hard to make and keep agreements, especially agreements that are sustainable, because a sustainable agreement is where you give something up in exchange for something, right, where both parties get something. But in the American political system, whatever the other party gets, which makes the agreement sustainable, is a concession. And that's a bad thing. That's a thing you've given away. You know? yeah. And so it's very typical to see U.S. politicians, particularly Republicans, use words like appeasement, compare deals to Munich. I mean, that's just that is our political system. And so that combination of being the strongest and being the most yeah. broken. I just don't understand. Yeah, I don't yeah. understand. Well, well, no, I was going to say the attitude is that we need to come up with an agreement with these other countries that provides no benefit to them. And yet oh, it's strange that that isn't happening. <laughs> As Dick Cheney said, we don't negotiate with evil. We defeat it. Yeah. Um, OK. Yeah. Do you have any comments regarding uh, what we should do uh, re Taiwan specifically? Taiwan's a tough call because, you know, I we don't want to throw a democratic country to the wolves. You know, like no. there are millions of people who live in Taiwan. They have a they have a, an elected government. It's very hard to say, you know, I'm sorry, our relationship with China is more important. Goodbye. On the other hand, it is a neuralgic issue for the Chinese government. And while I think their position is unreasonable, the empiricist in me says that it's it's not possible for Xi Jinping to be chill about it. So I think this is one of those situations where we really have to muddle through. And I honestly think that I love the... the if you look at the fundamental bargain in the, the Taiwan communique, which I find is people always get confused about it or it's expressed poorly. To me, it seems very simple. The bargain was we accepted that the Chinese were never going to let that island go. And our requirement is that however it's settled, it has to be settled peacefully. It cannot be settled by force. Like our red line is you don't get to blitz the island, right? So Taiwan doesn't get to be independent. We, we get that this is a make or break issue for you, but whatever you do, you cannot use force. And like, no one really likes that, but that strikes me as being sustainable. As as we could do. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are a lot of situations that are like miserable, but sustainable. And I think we often flirt with defecting from it because it's so unsatisfactory. But, yeah. you know, it's really hard to justify. I mean, it's hard, right? Like, it's hard to justify having a nuclear war over Taiwan. It is, yeah. But as a friend of mine used to say, there are principalities involved. <laughs> yeah, sometimes muddling through, I think, is horrifically underrated. Muddling, muddling through is what we do most of the time. And most of the time, it's all right. Okay, uh, you've, you've got to run. Uh, but one, one final question, uh, one, one final theme. You know, people in, people in the audience, some of them are interested in going into this discipline, trying to make humanity safe from nuclear weapons. Yeah, well, what would you like to, to say to those folks? I do it. It's, I mean, it is in many ways a wonderful field. 
because for all of the annoying bits about the gatekeeping and the technical piece and the arcane bit, you never stop learning. I learn something new every day. Every day I find some new story. I understand something a little bit better. You know, it is a it is a giant, complicated field that will intellectually reward you every day. And it's one of the most important problems that we face. I mean, I accept that there are probably several of these problems that we would put on the table. Yeah. But if you really want to dedicate your your life to trying to work on a problem that matters, I, I don't think anyone says this one doesn't matter. You know, this is this is a big one. Yeah. So I, I have found it to be an enormously rewarding career with the proviso that you probably need to have a slightly dark sense of humor in and maybe a tad cynical view uh, of the humans. Yeah. Well, I came into this conversation hoping, hoping to learn some stuff, and I feel like I've, I've learned, uh, learned an awful lot. I, I think I, for some, I'm not sure exactly why I'm going to have to think about this, but I'm also coming away somehow more optimistic. <laughs> it's possible to make a difference, yeah. Maybe you've just given me a bit of clarity where previously things felt very, uh, very hard to understand. I hope so, and, you know, it'll probably all turn out to be a mirage. My guest today has been Jeffrey Lewis. Thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours podcast, Jeffrey. Ah, it was a pleasure. If you enjoyed that, I think the episode you would most like next is episode 93, Andy Weber on rendering bioweapons obsolete and ending the new nuclear arms race. Then perhaps check out episode 118, Jamie Yassif on safeguarding bioscience to prevent catastrophic lab accidents and bioweapons development. And finally, episode 125, Joan Rolfing on how to avoid catastrophic nuclear blunders. Just a reminder again that on our other show, ADK After Hours, we've put out an interview with Marcus Davis, a founder of the research consulting group Rethink Priorities, which helped produce some of the work that Jeffrey was reacting to in this conversation. Among other things, Marcus talks about careers in journalist research where you study really neglected issues. So if you're interested in global priorities research or doing cost-benefit analysis as part of your career, or the effective altruism community more broadly, uh, do go check that out on the ADK After Hours feed. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. Audio mastering and technical editing by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.